Hello there, welcome to May Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny G. We're going over UFC on ABC number four, Rosenstrike vs. Almeida. The full card breakdown, we'll go with the prelim card first, then the main card. There's 12 total fights in the card. No championship bouts. Unfortunately, we did lose the Mackenzie Dern fight. It was pushed back about a week. Not sure why, but we still have 12 fights. The main event is going to be a heavyweight clash. We've got two heavyweight bouts actually on this card. This will be held in Shot, North Carolina at the Spectrum Center. So if you're in that neck of the woods, enjoy it if you're going to the event. Looking forward to seeing a live crowd again. I love the live crowd. It's so much better than the Apex. It'll be a full cage, right? Not the small cage. With that said, guys, we'll give you a full analysis for each fight. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and don't forget to check out our newsletter. On that note, guys, let's jump into it. Here we go. boys and girls first fight in the premium card should be jessica rose clark versus tanara lisboa now i say should be because we know how this works shuffling around next to you know it's the third fight in the card so forgive me if it's out of order but we're talking about this fight jessica rose clark versus tanara lisboa flyweight bout 135 pounders before i get into this detailed breakdown for you i'll tell you we like jessica rose clark we'll call her jrc if that's okay jrc by decision that is our prediction as for their details, Jessica Rose Clark, Rose Clark goes by Jesse Jess, though we'll call her JRC to keep it simple here. 11-8 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights. Actually, since she's Australian, I didn't know she was Australian. I thought of her as just like, you know, good old American, but I uh, know she's out of Australia. That's where her nationality is based out of. Las Vegas, Nevada is where she calls home, 35 years old, 5-5 five, five and a half with a 67-inch reach. She's training out of Combat Sports Academy. Has also done some training out of 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu. As for Lisboa, the Brazilian, so many Brazilian fighters, right? There's like at least three or four Brazilians on every card. She's one of the Brazilians for this card. Five and two overall. She's a slight dog here. Currently sitting at, forgive me, plus 120. And you've got JRC at minus 145. I know it's not a pick'em, but in my brain, this is more or less a pick'em area. One, minus 160, minus 170 in that range, then I see it like starting to pull away. But when you've got somebody in this range, to me in my brain, I know mathematically it's not a pick em, but if you can follow me there, just from the mental standpoint, I put this inside a pick em box. And also what I mean by that is like, if I were to win a bet on this fight with the dog, technically, I wouldn't count it like, oh, I had a dog here. Like Lisboa at plus 120 is in essence a pick em price. All right, uh, more details here. For as Lisboa is 5'6", about one inch taller than Clark, but has a one inch reach disadvantage compared to Clark. Those topology numbers could be off. Lisboa is 32, Clark is 35. 35, a flyweight, uh, I'm going to at least put it out there. You know, she's, she's at the tail end, right? She's taking that last journey, last part of her career. Uh, so I do want to note that. And as for Lisboa, she's out of Sao Paulo, Brazil. Let's talk about our breakdown here. These two fighters. For Jessica Rose Clark, coming back from a nasty injury. Her last fight, she was submitted via armbar. Unfortunately, wasn't able to, I guess, tap out quick enough. However you want to put it. Hard to watch. Had her arm dislocated. It looked horrible. Didn't require surgery from what I understand, which is common of, you know, a, a normal dislocated elbow. You kind of pop it back into place. You do your rehab. She documented her rehab on social media. You can see it like on Instagram and stuff. She made a full recovery, got back in the gym. That was about 10, 11 months ago. And that's plenty enough time to make a full recovery from an elbow dislocation. So she seems to be fully back. Happy for her on that note. Now, let's talk about the last few years. She's been in a rough stretch. Five and six over her last 11 fights. 
that includes what a three or four fight losing streak. So she's had it, you know, she's kind of, let me confirm the losing streak before I see that. Cause I wouldn't want to say that about somebody. I hear that if I'm a fighter, I'm like, dude, start making shit up about me. Right? So Jessica's lost two in a row. See my apologies. I'm glad to clarify, but she's lost four of her last five. And like I said, she's five and six in her last 11 fights. Now I'm not a mathematician or some kind of quick guy with the numbers, but that is below 500. And I believe that's a good sample size. 11 fights is a sample size of where she's at. Now, in that situation, she's fought some good, okay opponents, you know, so I, I can't say she's not, you know, fighting just complete cans. So she's been in the UFC for much of that time. Anyway, coming off of back-to-back submission defeat by Armbar um, in her last two outings, once by Edgar and then once by Storylenko. That's Storylenko's the one who, you know, broke her arm. Her most impressive wins today, 2021, two years ago, she beat Jocelyn Edwards. She's also got a win over Arlene Blencow in 2013. Yes, 10 years ago. But Blencow has gone on to have a pretty good career in Bellator and uh, has at least contested for a title. So those are her two most quality wins in her career. Now, each time she's moved up in caliber, this is where we get into problems. She finds herself getting outperformed. And it's like not closely outperformed, but like severely outperformed. So Clark's, you know, has had a hard time moving up in competition. This wouldn't be the case. She's fighting a, a debutante, right? Um, very durable. That's Clark, right? Never been finished in her career outside the last two submissions. So never been knocked out, you know, got submitted the last two fights, got her arm broken, whatever else, but has been durable for the most part. Um, she needs to withstand the early volume from Lisboa. When you watch film on Lisboa, she tries to drown out her opponents with volume, pace, and pressure. If Clark can, you know, withstand it early on, then get herself a body lock, drag the fight to the mat. That's where I believe she wins a fight. And based on film, just looking at film study, Clark, I think we'll be at a slight size disadvantage, honestly, and maybe a skill disadvantage. So even though she's going to have the one-inch reach advantage, according to this topology numbers, I think Tanara Lisboa is a little bit longer and has the better striking skills. So on the feet, I can see Clark having a harder time. I have to imagine, again, against the fence, dirty boxing, drag the fight to the ground. That would be better for Jessica Rose Clark. But I'm not saying I know that for sure because Tanara Lisboa, we'll talk about her in a second, uh, there's a lot of uh, question marks and blind spots, okay? So Lisboa making her UFC debut. She, um, as we've been reminded recently, I would say, put it this way. We've seen a lot of debutantes, okay? UFC newcomers. And I'm going to go back to UFC Vegas 72. On that card, I believe there was five UFC newcomers in total. And all five of them won. Yeah, look back at UFC Vegas 72. It surprised me. Um, I don't remember the names all offhand, but like, for example, you had, um, McGee was on that fight card, right? You had the Spanish kid who fought uh, a Rosa, but in total you had five first time, you know, UFC fighters and they all won. So, you know, currently the stigma is like, oh, it's a newcomer. They're going to drop the bag or drop, you know, fumble the ball or whatever. It's not always the case. Now, on the other hand, last weekend we had our, our guy Braxton Smith come in there and yeah, look like a newcomer exhausted himself like two minutes into round one seemed almost unbelievable through just like about four or five heavy punches and then that was it gassed himself out so in that case yeah we do see newcomers come in the bright lights don't manage their emotions whatever and can gas himself out but the point is this predicting a ufc debutante or a ufc rookie in terms of how they're going to do it's not an exact science right um for lisboa she likes to set a high pace, right? Very active. Try to drown out her opponents with volume. In the clinch, does a good job at her knees. She seems to be, again, I think she's the longer, taller fighter. Not like a lot longer, but I, she, that's the way she looks on film. She seems to be pretty lean. And though her record doesn't look like anything much at first glance, you got to peel back some layers to understand what her record's all about. 
So she's five and two overall, right? That's what we have here according to the uh, tapology, right? So she's five and two overall. Now, look at her record. Go back to the beginning. She fought Norma Dumont. That was her first mixed martial arts fight, okay? She had like a Muay Thai bout or kickboxing bout before that, but fights Norma Dumont. Film's available online. She holds her own early on. It's okay, but then gets submitted. <laughs> okay, now Dumont submits her in round number one. All right, whatever. Her first MMA fight. Norma Dumont obviously has moved on to have a, a UFC career. And for Lisboa, she's gone five and one since then. Yeah, right? Pretty good. The one loss was against a six and one Brazilian prospect. So, okay. The other loss was against someone who's pretty good, still fighting high winning percentage, right? But here's the concern with the five wins that she has. I was shocked. I, I Each profile I opened up again, next profile was like worse. The next one was worse. I'm like, wait a second. So the combined record of the five fighters that she won against, she, remember she's five and two. The five people she beat, their combined record is two and 11 combined. And I believe like three of them don't even, I mean, look, two and 11, right? So three of them don't even have a win. And you really cannot measure somebody's ability in the situation, right? You really can't say, oh, she's, you know, she does this well. It's like, I use the analogy all the time. If a grown man goes into the, in, you know, goes outside and starts fighting some kids at like, you know, seven-year-old kids at a park, that grown man is going to look amazing. <laughs> He's going to be kicking those kids' ass. So no matter how good Lisboa has looked on film in these five fights, I, it's no way to measure her ability. Now, on the flip side, when she fought someone above 500 like Norma Dumont, or in the case of the girl who was 6-1, and one, she lost. So, yeah, plenty of red flags there. We're going to go with Jessica Rose Clark because of the experience advantage and her grappling skills. Um, and, of course, we just talked about Lisboa. We, we don't really we can't depend upon Lisboa in this situation. Could she come out here, give JRC a hard time, and get a close fight, maybe go to a split? Yeah, that's all possible. But I'm banking on JRC, her experience, her grappling ability. I even think the UFC is giving her a, a shot to, like, get back in the win column. We'll give you a debutante, somebody who's, like, you know, okay, on the fringe of our radar. Um, and with a good, good game plan, you see she's working hard on social media. Um, I think JRC pulls off the win here by a decision. Now, the betting spots like the most for this fight are going to be over one and a half rounds. Fight starts round number two. Fight goes the distance. And then Clark by decision. As we mentioned before, because it's a female bout, we're inclined to look at submissions and then split decisions. I don't know that we're going to see a submission here. Though I guess I'll look at the prices throughout the week. And if I find something attractive, I'll put it into our tip sheet. But uh, that's the breakdown, guys. JRC, Jessica Rose Clark, who goes by Jesse Jess. We're going to take her to win the first fight on the prelim card by decision over at Lisboa. Let's move on. Making our way up the car, we've got a welterweight bout, 170 pounders. Brian Battle from the United States. And actually, he's the hometown kid. He's from North Carolina. This event's being held in North Carolina. Um, in Charlotte, specifically, is where he's training out of. So he'll literally be in his hometown against Gabe Green. Now, before we get into the particulars of this breakdown, we'll give you our pick to win. Gabe Green by split decision. That's our prediction. I know. We love talking about splits. Last fight card, UFC 288, had two splits. It was the Chaos Williams fight. And, of course, the main event. 
Um, we had some other ones on our radar for splits, but due to circumstances outside everyone's control, Burns got hurt, couldn't go to a split with his hurt or her shoulder, right? Got dominated. Uh, you know, and Jan decided to knock out <laughs> Andrade. And then um, Virna Gingenova, a fight we thought had a chance for split, also just got wiped out with Virna's grappling. So as we approach this fight, I'll do the best I can to explain to you why I think a split is possible. And if, look, you're thinking, oh, Gabe Green's a big-time finisher, this is correct. He is. I think, like, what, nine or ten of his 11 wins have been finishes. I, I get it. Um, but I, I could flip that stat over and say, I think, like, one of his last four fights, he's had a finish. Aha, see, I did that. So numbers are kind of screwy how you put them. I do think, though, he is a good finisher, Gabe Green. So on a serious note, has punching power, no question, has uh, submission ability. And actually, submission ability people overlook. You go back to his first few matches as a pro, that was his initial, what he was good at. And uh, when you have that as a foundation, it doesn't really go away. Now, is he working it as much, working more the stand-up game? I mean, that's a different sub subject matter. But in talking about Gabe Green's, finishing ability here i acknowledge it i understand it but i'll try to give my rationale as to why i think this fight does go the distance all right let me give you the details on these two fighters the stuff you can find on tapology but you know what i'll read it to you like a story welterweight bout 170 pounds mr green is three and two overall he i believe is the slight favorite am i correct on this you think I remember this offhand? Well, that's why. It's almost a pick and price. Minus 125 for Green, plus 105 for Battle. Green is out of California, 30 years old, 5'10 in height with a 73-inch reach. Training out of Trey's Hess, Subfighter MMA. These gyms are, are, are hardly accurate on tapology. Just reading to you what I see there. Unless I do additional research or I know a fighter, I can't tell you accurately for sure if these gyms are where they're at. Um, I would imagine in the case of Brian Battle out of Carolina Combat Sports and Fitness, I would imagine he's probably still there. It's in Carolina. Uh, could be wrong, though. So Mr. Battle goes by The Butcher. I like that name, The Butcher. 8-2 and two overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. He's a slight dog here. Or a pick him, if you would have put, you know, to be honest with you. 28 years old versus 30 years old for Green. Now, size does matter in this fight. That's uh, a point we want to make. Battle 6-1. That's 2 inches and a half or so taller. Or one, two, it's uh, it's three inches taller, whatever. Um, that's not the really big factor. It's the reach. 77-inch reach for battle, 73-inch reach for green. I believe that comes out to a five-inch reach disadvantage. That's a factor. If this fight can stay at range, you would imagine battle should have an advantage there. Let's read through our notes here on this fight. So green by split decision, that is our pick. We have a lot of respect for battle. He can win the fight. We don't want to sound like, oh, this is going to be one-way traffic, you know, green all day, green minus 125 on the money line. It's, it's, a, it's a bargain. No, no, no. Split decision, keywords. So this is going to be a close fight. Could go either way. For green, he's a balanced fighter with excellent punching power. He sports an impressive finish rate, though it's tapered off lately the last few years. 10 of his 11 victories have been the result of a finish, four by KO and six by submission. So again, known for his knockout power. Um, but... Uh, he has submission ability too. Look at the last few fights. So let me go back at this. So his last few fights, okay? His last four fights, Daniel Rodriguez, he loses by decision. Philip Rowe, he wins by decision. Then he fights Johan Leoness, and he knocks out Johan in round two of that fight. Next fight, he fights Ian Machado Gary. It goes to decision. So three of his last four fights, he's been to decision. We have to bring up the obvious here. 
when he's fighting higher caliber competition, he's not finishing them as high of a rate as he did before. You go back to prior to the UFC, because his first fight in the UFC was a loss to Rodriguez by decision. If you go back pre-UFC, my man had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven fights where he went nine and eleven, all nine wins by finish. His other two fights that he didn't finish, he got knocked out in round one. So now we're in the UFC. At least he's not getting knocked out his last two decisions that he lost, but he's gone to decision three of his last four times. This I want to embed into your head when I'm talking about this fight going further um, or going over or possibly not seeing the finish here uh, by Gay Green. So back to my notes here. Um, for Green, he's at his best when he forces his opponents to work off their back foot with forward pressure. The area he struggles at the most is grappling. For example, Phil Rowe gave him some troubles on the ground and Green's been submitted twice. Battle does have a handful of submissions, so we shouldn't put it out there that he couldn't get a submission for Green. He's going to need to be on his P's and Q's whenever they do any grappling. Another concern he ha we have here for Green is negative striking ratio. He's landing 6.2 strikes per minute, which is great. High volume. You love it, right? But then he's absorbing 6.92. You can't get hit seven times a minute. You just can't. Um, at some point, you're going to lose fights on the points because you're getting hit too much or you're going to get stunned or knocked out, right? Excuse me, striking numbers are the result of questionable or obviously very porous stand-up defense. For Battle, he's the ultimate fighter winner from two seasons ago, season 29. Since then, he's gotten 3-1 in the UFC with wins over Gilbert Urbina, Trajan Gore, Taka, Takahashi, Takahashi, Sato. Uh, names you may not recognize, but those are the wins he has uh, in the UFC. And uh, he went 3-0 and then lost his last fight to Fakhradinov, who basically out-wrestled him. That's what happened. Now, Battle will have a 4-inch reach advantage we mentioned before over Green. So we're thinking at range, his kicks, front kicks, he should bode well. Um, if you know how Green fights, he's always trying to close distance. That's going to be the problem for Battle. How do you keep this distance? I mean, good footwork. I mean, I think it's the big cage, right? Because it's not in the apex. So that, that should help uh, for someone like... Um, like battle who wants to keep distance and maybe allow himself to use his legs and kick or whatever else. Now, for battle, he's going to be at home, home court, more people, give me extra love, cheering, close fight. That could help him on the scorecards, you know, as well. His biggest weakness is takedown defense. For example, last fight we mentioned before, he dropped his last fight in large part against uh, Fakhradinov because of the wrestling. He couldn't stop the wrestling, um, and that was the end of the day, <laughs> pretty much, lost by decision. The second concern we have in battle is he's got a little bit less volume than Green. Now, Green is getting hit too much, so we do acknowledge that. But Green lands, you know, like almost two more strikes per minute uh, than my man here battle. So, in a close fight, you know, does it make sense the person who's throwing more, who's landing more, could get the edge in the scorecard? You know, so that's a little bit of a concern here we have for battle. Neither fighter's a wrestler. Both guys average like 0 0.6, 0 0.68, 0 0.8, like takedowns per fight, less than a takedown per fight for both guys. So we're, you know, predicting it's going to be more of a stand-up battle unless somebody gets tripped or falls down. And of course, at that point, we could have some, you know, mistaken ground situation that, you know, it's a fight, right? Things happen. But for the most part, I don't imagine we're going to see both guys shooting a lot or looking to get trips or takedowns. I'm thinking, you know, the better part of three rounds, a kickboxing fight at range, some Muay Thai against the fence, and their gas tanks will be a factor. I think just who's throwing more will be a factor. So mathematically, that is green, you know? 
We do have to say, though, like this is hometown for battle, right? And it's it's a fight that could get very, very close. Battle's been very durable, right? Let me just double check here looking at Battle's resume. Um, I should have had it in my notes, but Battle's lost two fights. Last fight against Renat Fakhradinov, he loses by decision. And then he got armbarred about four years ago um, and whatever, armbarred 2019. I'm not really thinking that he's the kind of guy who's not durable. He could take a punch or two. These guys are going to test each other. It's going to go over. And so the betting spots we like the most for this fight are going to be over one and a half rounds, which is not out yet. I'm sorry. These prop prices are not available to me just yet. Um, the fight starts round number two. And those will be chalky. Like, it'll probably be over one and a half at, like, oh, let's just say minus 300. It'll be fight starts round number two at, like, minus 450 or something. I just find it to be safe spots to parlay with some other stuff because a fight like this, I think it's going to be very close. We'll take green by decision as our last prop we're looking at, and then we're going to sprinkle both guys on each side by a split. And those prices are not available yet, but to get those prices, check out our newsletter. The link is down below. There's a free version and a paid version, but our tip sheet is uh, is fully allocated with everything, numbers, the whole nine, prop bets, parlays, specials, individual bets, you name it, it's in there. So we'll have all of our prices in our tip sheet and our newsletter uh, once it's being updated throughout the week. But as of right now, as of this Sunday evening recording, uh, we don't have the prop prices available just yet for this, so I can't give them to you. But again, the prop prices or the props we like again for this fight are gonna be the over one, this fight is going to be, I'm talking about, just make sure if you're catching up in the video right now, I'm talking about Gabe Green versus Brian Battle. So the props we like for this fight are gonna be over one and a half rounds, fight starts round number two and green by decision. And we'll sprinkle both sides by split decision. Let's move on. Making our way up the prelim card, we've got the second of three female fights on the card. G. Yun Kim versus Mandy Bohm. Before I get into these breakdown details, I'll tell you we like G. Yun Kim by decision. Uh, that is our prediction. We think the uh, Asian fighter from, I think she's what, North Korea, South Korea, one of the two Koreas, I'll qualify that in a second, though, against Mandy Bone from Germany. So you got Kim at minus 250. I also believe that price moves. I think she gets anywhere from minus 325 to minus 350 when it's all said and done. A little glance at film on both fighters. I, you don't have to be uh, an expert in the sport of MMA to realize I think Ji Young Kim has some advantages here. Um, and they're going to be significant. For Mandy Bohm, uh, she does need a W. I went to the UFC. We'll talk about it in a second. But let's go over their details, their measurables, right? So flyweight bout, 125 pounders. For Miss Kim, who goes by the fire fist, 9, 6, and 2 overall. So record looks very, like, ooh, little suspect, right? She is from South Korea, not North Korea. How dare I? Now based out of Las Vegas, 33 years old, five foot seven in height, a taller flyweight right taller side of the flyweight division 72 inch reach out of mob training center um i don't know if that's accurate i think she's at one of the more like popular vegas gyms like um i don't know syndicate or you know extreme couture not sure i, I couldn't tell you uh mandy bohm seven and two overall a little less experience three into her last five fights she's a slight dog here out of germany 33 years old five seven so both of them are five seven both tall this division 71 inch reach same reach for both fighters basically and for mandy bohm out of the famed sbg ireland where of course you've got the one and only the notorious mr conor mcgregor all right let me read to you guys you ready for bedtime story here we go g yun kim by decision is the prediction for kim her record doesn't really accurately reflect how good she is 
or maybe how bad she is, right? You could say that too, but we think it doesn't reflect actually the fighter that she is. Her four-fight losing streak is going to cause a lot of bettors, I'm not going to call the name casuals, whatever. Whoever's betting on these fights, you look at Ji Young Kim's recent resume and you're like, whoa, you just can't see nothing but red. All I see is red, baby. So that's going to turn a lot of people off. Now, a glance over her last few fights will reveal a little layer deeper that, you know, she's durable, number one, not getting finished, has good volume, a lot of heart, lost a split, you know, some things could have gone her way differently. She went toe-to-toe with Cachoeira in a fight that was like fight of the night type of fight, maybe I would say fight of the year, I'm not going to be over, I'm not overstated, but could make the top, let's say, six, seven fights of the year, and maybe number one or two female fights of the year, like that's how good it was. They go back and forth. Cashewer cracks her several times, cuts open uh, Kim. So Kim's dealing with some adversity. She's bleeding quite a bit. She's also cracking Cashewer. <laughs> this goes back and forth. Um, didn't like how sloppy our girl Kim was in that fight in terms of just eating way too many punches, and that's one of the issues we have with her. But went the distance against Grasso, Anton- Antonina Shevchenko, not Valentina, Antonina, Molly McCann, and... Uh, Lucia Putalova, you know, all quality fighters along with Cashewera. So for Kim's last fight, it was a bit of a dud. She went against Edwards, Jocelyn Edwards. In that fight, it goes to split decision. So she kind of barely loses the fight. But Edwards was just much bigger. And you can see that Kim was either intimidated or just didn't feel comfortable. She wouldn't get into range and wouldn't strike with Edwards. Was backing up a lot of the fight, very hesitant. I'm surprised it even went to a split. I kind of thought she lost out, right? But that's a female fight. You know, things like this happen, right? Anyway, bottom line is this. In the terms of the entire career of Ji Young Kim, I'm going to paint the, the the mural half glass full, not half glass empty. I think she's held her own. That's the point here. She's fought nine total fights. I believe this will be her 10th total fight now in the UFC. Has never been finished. Her grappling, yeah, doesn't do any grappling. Her stand, her, her takedown defense, also not great. She can be outgrappled, and she can lose that way every single time against any kind of reasonable grappler. But outside of her striking defense, also needing improvement, um, she's got high volume, right? She's got a chin. She's tough, somewhat exciting. Now, she absorbs 5.77 strikes per minute. There's the number. It's a lot. She's getting hit almost six times per minute and doesn't have a single takedown in the UFC. I mean, those are clear and obvious deficiencies. So when we say we like her against Mandy Bohm, maybe this is more of a reflection of how much faith we don't have in Mandy Bohm, and not that we think Ji Young Kim is like this overwhelming, amazing fighter. Matter of fact, at minus 250, it is a little bit of a trap. You will see people betting on Mandy Bohm because Kim's on a losing streak, plus money on Bohm. Can you argue with it? You know, we'll find some way to bet on Mandy Bohm here to give ourselves, you know, some plus money in return just in case things blow up because we do like Ji Young Kim quite a bit. We'll find ourselves even maybe parlaying her, something of that nature. Anyway, so um, she's landing 5.79 per minute. <laughs> so barely above the negative you know, striking ratio. So again, absorbing 5.77, landing 5.79. We like that volume from Kim. We do that. Just do, do like that. But she needs to improve her stand-up defense. Um, and then also over the long haul, she needs to get better at wrestling because she can get out wrestled by even an average fighter. Now, for, as for Mandy Bohm, the German fighter, she went 7-0 and up until two years ago. Now she's 7-2. and And about two years ago, she signs with the UFC. Now she's 0-2 in the UFC, 7-2. Very typical of fighters. They come into the UFC, they're undefeated, things are looking good. They get up in here, and the competition's a little bit tougher. She lost by decision to Lipsky and to 
Leonardo. The loss to Lipsky is like, eh, you know, all right, whatever. And then, then losing to Leonardo by decision two, it was like, ugh, you know, I, I feel like Mandy Bohm right off the rip is like she's showing you I'm not at that level yet. And I would think that Victoria Leonardo and Ariana Lipsky, excuse me, are kind of at the lower end of this, you know, weight class. So that's not a good look. Um, it's not a big deal that she lost both, out, both these fights. I mean, you start your UFC career, you see guys, gals who start off rough and then end up having amazing careers. People who get let go and come back. Look at Brandon Marino, right? So it's not how you start, it's how you finish. But here's the problem. When you bring it back on tape, the concern is she didn't look good. Like she didn't she didn't look good on film. Uh, Mandy doesn't look like she belongs out there with them. And quite honestly, I, I'm not sure why the UFC brought her in. I have to remind myself the circumstances was a last minute replacement. I don't know. But man, uh, she absorbs almost double the amount of punches she throws. I mean, that's that's a fact. Like she literally absorbs almost double double the amount that she throws out. Um, has zero takedown, so also has no wrestling ability. You know what I mean? Has some submissions. She does have a few submissions, but doesn't have any wrestling ability that we know of. Her striking volume is limited, landing 2.93 strikes per minute, so that's quite a bit less than her opponent here. And she hasn't been very active over her professional career. If you go back and look, she went professional 2014, right? And in that period of time, which is nine years, she's fought a, a total of, uh, what, nine fights, right? So about once a year. Tons of cancellations, some out of her control, right? She's had 12 fights canceled over her professional career. So we understand that. But um, we have a lot of questions about whether she's UFC caliber now, young enough maybe to make some improvements. Uh, I think Ji Young Kim, who's also barely holding on to her UFC credentials, right? Because she's in a tough spot too. Here's the reality. A loss by either fighter could result in them getting cut. Now you might say, oh, Mandy, boom, just three fights in the UFC, lose all three fights. You know, why would you cut her? Well, look back at, for example, like Ji Young Kim. When Ji Young Kim came into the UFC, her first fight, she comes out. She loses by decision to Lucia Pudilova. Okay. Next fight, she wins a split. Following fight, she wins her second fight by a split. She goes 2-1 to start her career, then loses a decision to Ant Antonina Shevchenko, and then knocks out her opponent, next opponent in the UFC, to then start her UFC career off, you know, 3-2. and two. So there was some traction there. You saw something from Ji Young Kim. And even her recent fights, it was exciting. I thought you didn't see much of anything from Mandy Bohm, and that's my concern here. We end up in a situation where whoever loses this fight may get their pink slip. Um, because for Ji Young Kim, if she were to lose against Mandy Bohm, trust me, I don't think the promotion's like, oh, this is you know a little hiccup. I think Ji Young Kim, this is an opportunity for her to get on track. Um, and so if she can't do it here, it's like I think Mandy Bohm, <coughs> she earns her you know right to fight another day, and then. Excuse me. <clears throat> then the UFC at that point would pull the plug on Kim. The betting spots you like the most for this fight are going to be the fight going over one and a half rounds. Fight starts round number three. Kim by TKO and Kim by decision. Because it's a female fight, Kim went to split in her last fight. She went to split back-to-back -back fights in her early part of UFC career. It's female mixed martial arts. We're obligated. We're obliged to sprinkle the split pops here. So again, in this fight, we're going to be going with the fight going over one and a half rounds. Should be very chalky. I get it. That'll be one of our parlay pieces. Kim by TKO. I can see a world where Kim slices her up, man. Kim throws elbows. She's she's a pretty fluid striker. Not a lot of power. But could she overwhelm her opponent? Swallow her up with volume? Could happen. And then came by decision, along with sprinkling this with decision props. All right, boys and girls, that's your breakdown for this fight. Let's move on.
All right, next fight, the docket's going to be Natan Levy, who goes by Lethal, versus Pete Rodriguez, who goes by Dead Game. Before I get to their basics, let me talk about who I like to win and how. Natan Levy, by round one submission, is a prediction. How about them apples? Yeah, we're going on a ledge here. Natan Levy hasn't had a lot of finishes recently, but uh, we think this is going to be a good matchup for him. So round one submission for Natan Levy. That's our pick. That's our method. Let's talk the details now. So for Levy, 8-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He's the favorite here currently lined at minus 300. It's been moving up a little bit. So he was like minus 270, minus 290. Now he's minus 300. You got Rodriguez at plus 240. I wouldn't be surprised if this grows. We get upwards of minus 350, minus 360 by the time the fight closes because I do think Natan Levy is quite a bit better and you know, that's not going to be hard for even the you know most common eye to see. Um, you look at last few fights, both fighters, and you see, you'll start seeing things right away. Like, okay. Now, if you dive deeper to their background, you find out more about them and just some other backstories, which we'll talk about. I think you'll find yourself liking the Tom Levy even more. All right. If you talk about nar narrative, tinfoil hat, here we go. We'll talk about it with this, for this fight right here. So lightweight bout, 155 pounders, Levy's 8-1 overall. He's the favorite out of Las Vegas via Israel. 31 years old, five foot nine in height, with a 72 inch reach, and he's out of Syndicate MMA. As for Pete Rodriguez, dead game, five and one overall. He's four and one in his last five fights. He's the dog here, proverbial dog, plus 240, based out of Arizona. 26 years old, five foot nine in height, so same height, but I'm I'm not even sure about that number, and I I think I think Levy will be slightly taller, but like not much taller, but um, reach wise one inch more for Rodriguez, which does make sense. His arms do look longer. Um, Natan Levy's kind you know kind of jacked, looks like a, a wrestler basically. Uh, Rodriguez is 73 inch reach compared to 72 for Levy, and for Rodriguez he's out of um, MMA lab. All right, let's talk about the breakdown of these two fighters. All right, let me get comfortable so we can read read to you guys. All right, so Natan Levy by round one submission is the prediction. Levy is one of the prized possessions of the UFC. And I want to, I don't want to overstate it, but I do want to state it for you guys. The, you know, I'm just going to blurt out some facts for you guys. The UFC is a business of entertainment. Punto, right? They know where their, you know, bread is buttered. You know, guys like Patty Pimlet. We saw the fight this past weekend. Matt Frivola was like, hey, man, fight me. Don't be a chicken. A lot of people want to fight Patty. It's not because they don't like the guy. No, I think most people recognize it's a good payday. It'd be good on their resume. The crowd would be wild. Um, it's just a lot of benefits to them, right? And I think at the end of the day, all these fighters calling him out also know something else. They also know he ain't that good. <laughs> you know, like he's just okay. Uh, may have even lost his last fight. You know, just say So, um... Uh, anyway, back back to this this fight right here uh, for Levy. There is a bit of a, a push from the UFC. They understand, look, how many Israeli Jewish fighters do we have on the roster? Now, there's that guy who fought recently as a replacement, and he is from Israel, but he is not Jewish. And look, it shouldn't matter that much, but then again, it does kind of matter that much. So in this case, Natan Levy, I believe, exists as maybe the only Jewish and Israeli Jew, like no offense, Jews all over the world, but like Israel is the Mecca of Jew, Jew land. That's the Judaism center. So, I mean, all Jews have their right of passage to go visit, you know, Israel once in their lifetime. It's paid for. Like this is a really this is a Jewish thing for real, for real, for real. Anyway, so Natan Levy being one of one, a market 
the UFC wants to tap into. I mean, could we see literally a UFC event like in Israel one day? I mean, Tel Aviv, pretty banger. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's cornerstones of the sport that have those roots. I mean, even Ariel Hawani, right? You know, he's, uh, you know he's, a, he's a man of the world. I believe he's of the Jewish faith. Um, in any case, this guy's one of one. Dana mentioned in a press conference about a year and a half ago that he received calls, as in plural. Now, look, we know Dana talks in tongues, and sometimes he's not being accurate with his description of things. He kind of has a way of promoting, right? <clears throat> Isn't that his job in essence, right? A little, you know, fabricate the truth per se. But he's post-fight press conference after one of Tom Levy's early, you know, wins in the UFC, and He's, you know, responded to questions about Natan Levy, and he says, "Oh yeah, you know, I've he's got a big smile on his face. I've gotten calls about him from, you know, some big wigs, big wigs in Hollywood. Exact exact words were like some big wigs or some higher ups and Hollywood executives who called him and said they were so excited that you know they've got this guy in the roster, Natan Levy, and you know just excited to watch him and whatever. And you know, well, let me clarify for you what that is." Um, Hollywood is a, is a town that is, in essence, you got actors and actresses and people of all different, you know, genres and colors. But uh, the the Jewish faith, the people who are happen to be Jewish, have a big <clears throat> to do in Hollywood. A lot of the top executives and people that you know run the business happen to be Jewish. Doesn't have that's not a bad thing. You know, I'm not go, I'm not have Jewish friends myself. I'm okay with that. It's nothing against stating the obvious. So imagine a scenario where Jewish people or Israeli even Jewish people who are in high up tons of money calling their buddy Dana because, you know, they have, you know, cell phones like Dana, what are you doing this weekend? Let's fly to Aruba, whatever. Um, hey, Dana, man, we love having this guy on the roster. Thank you so much for signing this kid or finding this kid. It's great. We're excited and, you know, um, follow the money. So, look, there's going to be an inherent business reason to protect Natan Levy, give him opponents that he can beat develop him um don't give him people that he's gonna have a hard time with right now develop this guy allow him to grow he's still got a lot of things to work on himself i just want to put it out there you got powerful people who like him dana likes him he understands the value of his pawns in the ufc people like the you know patty pimlets um i think natan levy is is gonna fall into that same vein here over the next let's say a year or so all right let's talk here more about natan levy all right <clears throat> natan has finishing ability but he's been to decision in six of his last seven fights. That's interesting, right? He lacks punching power, which is why he doesn't have a knockout on his professional resume. Natan does have three submissions, though, as a pro, and another two as, a, as an amateur. So he's got about five total submissions, right, between pro and amateur. If he could stand the first wave from Pete, because Rodriguez likes to come out very aggressive, throwing everything, all kind of heat, undisciplined striker, actually. If Natan could just get past that and not get cracked, he should be able to initiate a grappling attack and a takedown, catch Rodriguez off balance. And from there, I think he could submit Rodriguez. Now, his wrestling for uh, Natan Levy, a bit underrated, landing 5.37 takedowns per fight. That's a lot. Uh, it's a lot, <laughs> put it that way. So he's very active in wrestling. And for a guy who has a karate background and a karate stance, it's impressive. He knows how to wrestle. If Natan could drag down Rodriguez early, I think he gets a tired Rodriguez down, holds him down, Eventually, Rodriguez goes to his belly, tries to change position, give up his back, and you see Natan Levy with a rear naked choke. As for Mr. Pete Rodriguez, he has one mode, and one mode only, baby. That's full speed, man. Sixth gear or fifth gear. Depends on how the highest gear is in the vehicle you're driving. He's going full force. 
He's allergic to the second round. He don't go to the second round. He's got about three to five minutes of fighting him, and that's it. In the meantime, it's exciting. <laughs> Super exciting. In six MMA fights, he has not been to the second round. Never. No, no, no. Doesn't do it, right? Kind of like that guy, Braxton Smith, who got knocked out by Parker Porter. Like, that fight was never going to round number two. I don't know who's going to win, but in this case here, same kind of fighter. He's earned five first-round TKOs, and he's also been knocked out in round one. He got knocked out in round one by Jack Della Maddalena. So we got to at least say, look, he didn't get knocked out by, by you know some nobody. You go back and watch that fight. <laughs> it's funny. Early on, you see Rodriguez is like going forward. He's aggressive. And you see Maddalena's kind of like, you know, observing. He's not like running backwards, but he's just, you know, giving some ground, observing. And then once Maddalena figures it out, okay, I see what he's doing. <laughs> Just knocks this kid out like it was nothing. So, you know, there's levels to this game for Rodriguez when he's fighting, you know, the regional scene. He's going to knock people out. It's not going to be an issue. It's kind of like that girl. What's her name? Uh, Tainara Lisboa. We talked about her earlier. So we can appreciate the passion of Rodriguez. We can appreciate the pressure. He brings the fight to his opponent. Those are good things, right? But there's a fine line between being aggressive and then just being reckless. Okay. I think he falls more on the side of reckless. He leaves himself wide open for counters, both counter punches or counter takedowns. You know what I mean? If he starts throwing these haymakers, I think Natan catches him off balance with an easy takedown. Remember, Natan doesn't have punching power. I didn't say that. He's not going to counter punch Rodriguez and knock him out. Well, you know what? I just said it, and now it's in existence. It's probably going to happen. <laughs> um, I didn't think Yanan Yang was going to knock out Andrade in the first round of that last fight either. But uh, Or with, with this guy, um, Alex Setoff, knocking out um Phil Hawes in the first round. So knockouts do happen, I guess, based upon my superb analysis here. I just feel like Natan Levy will find himself an easy takedown early. Why not take a route he knows, get this guy down? I mean, Natan Levy has had to see some film on this guy. What he does is one thing only. Pete just throw, Rodriguez just throws haymakers everywhere. If he lands one, it's going to be a problem for Levy. So just, you know, make it easy, man. Take the fight to the ground, submit his ass. The betting spots like the most of this fight are going to be only a few spots here. The fight not going to the scorecards, the under two and a half rounds, and then Natan Levy by submission. Those are the spots we like the most. And that submission we're thinking is going to happen early, round number one. Remember, Pete Rodriguez has never been to round number two. That's your breakdown, boys and girls. Let's move on. Making our way up the prelim card, we've got a bantamweight bout. 135 pounders, Cody Stamen, who goes for the Spartan versus Douglas Silva de Andrade. All right, Andrade is the veteran, 37 years old versus Stamen, 33. Before we get to the details, we'll give you the pick to win. Cody Stamen by decision. That is our prediction. Cody's currently listed at minus 165. You got Andrade at plus 140. This is as of Tuesday evening. Those lines could change a little bit. As for the details, Cody is 21-5-1 overall, 2-3 and three in his last five fights, based out of Sparta, Michigan. American fighter, 33 years old, 5'6 in height, with a 64.5-inch reach, trains that have now extreme couture in Las Vegas. As for Douglas Silva de Andrade, who goes by De Silva, 28-5 overall, 3-2 and two in his last five fights. He's a slight dog here. Um, sorry, no, not a slight dog. He's currently listed at... Plus 140. He did open as a pick'em, but uh, we've moved around a little bit, so now he's at a little more plus money. Out of Brazil, 37 years old and 10 months, so just about to be 38. 5'7 with a 68.5 inch reach. He trades out of NFT Castanhal. 
Let's talk our breakdown. So again, Cody by decision is our prediction for Andrade. He's a veteran fighter with impressive resume. He fought such killers as Peter Yan, Marlon Chido Vera, Rob Font, Sergey Marazov, and Saeed Nurmagomedov. He enters this fight off a decision loss to Nurmagomedov last summer. Andrade needs to keep the wins going to keep his career alive. Right, about to be 38. He's getting to that point, the twilight years. 135 pounders, 38 is ancient. He's been inconsistent of late. He's 4-4 four four over his last eight fights. The most impressive win of his career was a decision win over Marlon Chido Vera in 2018. That was Vera 1.0. Vera has improved quite a bit since then. I thought if they'd rematch now, I think Vera would win that fight, right? Now, since then, he's dropped fights to Peter Yan, Laron Murphy, and, of course, Saeed Nurmagomedov. Prior to joining the UFC 2014, check this out. A little stat for you. Prior to him signing with UFC 2014, so go back. He's not in UFC yet. He was 22-0. and 0. So when he signed the UFC about nine years ago, my man came in with an impressive record. Tons of finishes, 22-0. Now, since joining the UFC, his record is 6-5. Yeah. Another great example of how regional competition, people in whatever, someplace in South America, wherever, overseas, LFA, whatever it is, you know, um, it's not the UFC. So a guy who was 22-0 before going to UFC has now gone 6-5 and five in his last 11 fights. He's more or less a 500-level UFC fighter, right? Of his six wins in the UFC, two were by knockout and one by decision. I'm sorry, two were by knockout and uh, one was by submission. I'm off on that. I apologize. I have to correct that. I have a typo here in my notes. Uh, his last win was by submission, and Cody's been submitted twice. So interestingly enough, if you want to take a flyer on Andrade by submission, there is a world where that can happen, right? Now, maybe the odds of that should be pretty juicy, so just something to consider. They're not out just yet. All right, as for Cody Stamen. The American wrestler, a balanced wrestler. He's averaging 2.47 takedowns per fight. <clears throat> Very strong physique. Looks like he belongs in one of those like Randy Macho Man Savage type of like wrestling matches. You know, very juiced, strong guy. Um, good takedowns, strong in the clinch. This fight will mark his 12th in the UFC. Very good experience. Both guys are UFC veterans, right? Stamen has been durable throughout his career. He's never been knocked out. Has been submitted twice, yes, but never been knocked out. The smartest path to victory for, for Stamen is pretty simple. Employ the wrestling, drag it to the mat. On the feet, Andrade is not a very high-volume striker, but he's, you know, he's tactful. He's, you, know, you don't fight almost 30, 40 fights you know, and, and be around this long unless you've got some level of brains upstairs. So both guys have pretty good fighter IQ. Who employs their game plan will matter. And for Stamen, the game plan is get me 2.47 takedowns in this fight, hold this guy Andrade down a little bit, and go to the scorecards. That is one of the things with Stamen. The lack of finishing ability has caught up with him many times. Um, now, granted, he's fought some good guys, and he was submitted by, you know, Nurmagomedov type of people, so it wasn't like he got submitted by bums. But the point is, he has to stay away from, the, stay away from a, a close fight by getting it to the ground, keeping top control. That is his path to victory. The betting spots like the most for this fight are going to be the fight going to the distance, the fight going over 1.5 rounds, and statement by decision that over 1.5 rounds will be super chalky, like minus 450, minus 500. Fine, that'll be a parlay piece for me and some other action. Statement by decision should be around pick of money or plus money, I imagine, when it drops. Anyway, guys, that's the breakdown. We do like Cody Stamen here, very confident in him. I just think with Douglas Silva DeAndrage, we've got you know, age catching up now. He's a 500 level fighter. He's six and five in the UFC. This will make him six and six, you know. So, um, and I think Cody Stamen ha has something left in the tank. Has under, I wouldn't say underperformed, but he's been a little bit of an underachiever. And now's the time, right? He's 33 years old. Now or never. So give me Cody Stamen with a fight by decision. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on.
And this should be the last fight on the prelim card or the prelim card main event. It's going to be a heavyweight clash. Two American fighters. Well, kind of American. Carl Williams is from the Virgin Islands, which is the U.S. Virgin Islands. But anyway, he's still kind of American. Carl Williams versus Chase Sherman. Of course, Chase Sherman goes by the Vanilla Gorilla. We've gotten to know him over the last few go-arounds. This is his third tour of duty with the UFC. Uh, that is something that is um, its kind of a badge of honor, right? At first, you don't succeed. <laughs> try, try, try again. So we'll give you the pick now and a very, very vanilla overview for the Vanilla Gorilla because I don't believe this fight warrants deep, intense breakdowns, and I'll explain to you why in a second. Um, nonetheless, give me Carl Williams to win this fight, most likely by decision, and talk about... Uh, a level of unsurety. Uh, this would be the fight where you just you think you find a piece that makes sense, and then Chase Sherman comes in and does something that's unbelievable, um, not in a good way. Carl Williams, he is the rightful favorite now, it's floating around minus four ten now, right? Minus four ten, you can get Chase Sherman around plus three hundred. I get those who are like, hey man, plus three hundred heavyweight bout, low level, take a shot at Chase Sherman. And if you have no knowledge about their history. It's probably easier to just pull that trigger and say, oh, yeah, you know, it's, you know, Chase Sherman. This guy's got a shot, right? Carl Williams, a new guy. But if you know about them, you know, Carl Williams at least has one thing that he does well. He's a wrestler, right? He wrestles often and heavy, drags opponents down, chews up clock. It's not very exciting, but that's what he does. Um, now, he's come in as an undersized heavyweight, but so is Chase Sherman. These guys are like two, you know, 235. Um, that's their area, like 227, 235 in that range, not 265. Uh, this is a whole other subject matter, but the bottom line is they're really just heavy, light heavyweights, if that makes sense. They're not natural heavyweights. In this fight, that would benefit them both because they're not fighting a guy who is a natural heavyweight who could take him down, land them, and give them a problem. But here's the reality. In 10 years from now, these guys are not in the heavyweight division of the UFC. In 10 years from now, we've got more bodies that fill the role. These guys would have to fight at left heavyweight. But for now, in a graveland of just like, you know, when you go to a, um, a junkyard, if you've ever been to a junkyard, it's, it's a graveyard of cars. And this is the graveyard of the UFC heavyweight division. All that said, I should give Carl Williams more credit. He is 8-1. He's been overachieving. I just think there's a cap there. How far can he go in this heavyweight division? What will he do when he fights some guys who can do a little wrestling too? but can force him to stand up and strike and then test him in the area, I think we'll have some problems. All right, I've reeled off too much of my own thoughts. Let's talk details. Mr. Sherman is 16-11-0 overall. 1-4 in his last five fights. He's a dog here around plus 310 range out of Delbertsville, Mississippi, and he trains out of ATT in Mississippi. So ATT, Mississippi. No offense, not quite the ATT like in Florida, but, you know, still kind of the same thing a little bit. He's 33. So is Carl Williams. He's six foot four. Carl Williams six foot three, 78 inch reach for Chase Sherman, 79 for Carl Williams. So height, reach, age, it's negligible. All right. As for Carl Williams, he's also at ATT, but ATT Atlanta, right? And he's out of Georgia, obviously, 33, big favor here out of the Virgin Islands. And so at first glance, you're like, oh, eight and one. This guy looks better than Chase Sherman. He is. <laughs> Let's just call a spade a spade. Chase Sherman is not in the UFC right now. If they didn't need a last-minute replacement for, uh, it was Romanoff. So about a year ago, Chase had been cut for the second time, and they needed somebody last minute. And so they gave him a three-fight deal, I believe. And now, if you're looking at that, let me pull up his actual fights, right? I believe it was a three-fight deal. 
So if that was the case, his first fight was against Romanoff. Then he fought Jared Vandera, and he won that fight. All right, Chase. Then he lost by decision to Waldo Cortez Acosta, and this should be his third fight. So <laughs> there is a chance here that if Williams were to, let's say, you know, make Chase look pretty bad, or Chase just has a bad performance, that this could be his third time getting cut after this fight. Flip side, I mean, who else do you guys got up in there? I, I would probably keep Chase around. You know, just let him keep getting beat up. Be some kind of a lower-level gatekeeper. I think Williams drags his ass to the ground. If you know Chase, a lot of it's up here with him. He'll go to the corner. He'll start. He'll be combative with his own corner, like arguing with them. And they're trying to like, yeah, come on, Chase, you can do it. And she's like, no, I can't do it. No, Captain. And they're like, no, Chase, you can do it. So it's, there's a lot going on upstairs. Former college football player. And I want to say this. A former offensive lineman at a Division II school, Delta State, I believe, who won the national championship. Uh, that was one of the best programs in the country when I was coaching college ball years ago. If you go to Delta State, you get a full ride if you're a full scholarship person. Good program, well-funded. Not Division One, I get it. But guys came out of that program, made their way into the NFL. He was an offensive lineman there, Chase Sherman. So he was part of a national championship winning program. And I like that as a part of his pedigree. Unfortunately, like that mental toughness, playing offensive line, you know, that requires a lot of dedication. I <laughs> haven't seen it in mixed martial arts. We've been left a little unfulfilled. Maybe we see something totally different. If you're taking a shot at the dog, I think this is reasonable because the price tag. But I don't think it's a great place to put your money. I think Carl Williams does live up to this minus 410, minus 400 favorite. Maybe even explodes to minus 500 by the time the fight goes off. Not going to be exciting. Some props to consider, though. I would look at this. Look at the fight starting round number two. Uh, going over one and a half rounds. Uh, starting round number three. Going the distance. Look at the fight going longer. These guys are not great finishers. Carl Williams, look at his resume, right? Let's pull up his uh, last few fights. For Williams, his last few fights. Last fight, he wins that by a decision over Lucas Bransky. Then he wins over Jimmy Lawson by decision on Contender Series. So, uh, prior fight got a knockout that was over an XMMA, but then his two fights before that, decision wins over Kyle Wright, Miles Almos. Now, let's consider this, too. Those are decision wins over a guy like, for example, let's look at this guy, Kyle Wright. Kyle Wright, decision win. Kyle Wright is 2-1. He's also not a very big guy. He's also a small kind of a heavyweight. So, when you look at these kind of people that Carl Williams is going to decision with, I would at least say Chase Sherman's got a little more experience, you know, probably could put up enough of a fight. And so long as he doesn't just give up on himself, I see this fight going at least to the distance. And, you know, at that point, that minus 410, by the way, that minus 400, you know, price tag on Carl Williams to have him as a parlay piece. <laughs> I don't know, man. I compared this to uh, the, the price tag earlier of Carlos Olberg. Like, do you really want to be holding that ticket? What's the value there? Maybe find a prop that makes more sense. Shit, maybe the over a half round sitting at minus 650 or something crazy like last week. We had a few of those. But nonetheless, give me Carl Williams by decision. And for Chase Sherman, I hope you stick around, dude. Nothing against you. Hope that you turn 33, man. These guys are babies and heavyweights, right? They're not real heavyweights, though. But nonetheless, I don't wish anyone getting cut. Chase seems like a guy that, you know, whatever. Seems like a nice dude. Hopefully he doesn't get cut here. But there's a chance this could be his last fight in the UFC again. All right, guys, let's move on. And here we are at the main card, welterweight bout, 170 pounders, Court McGee versus Matt Brown. Two American fighters get the party started for the main card. Before we get to the breakdown, we'll tell you right now, we'd like Court McGee to win the fight by decision. Now, 
I'm going to save you a lot of time here. I'm not going to get into a bunch of numbers and stats because this fight, like the last fight, there's just some inherent things that we've, we've got to acknowledge. And then from there, the breakdown becomes short and sweet. I like me some Matt Brown. The guy is, is a veteran. He goes by the Immortal. Very tough dude. If you saw his fight against, what was that? Um, it was a fight Ohio about a year ago when he fought this the guy with the hairy beard, whatever. Nonetheless, it was a damn war. Um, he went out there, put on a performance. I believe he lost by split decision. Some people thought he won. That was the fight against Brian Barberena, his last fight. Last year in March, about a year ago, just over a year ago, he loses by a split. But got his, I mean, got a lot of got a lot of damage in that fight. And I believe was showing the telltale signs of a fighter who prime is gone um, and, you know, best days behind him, hanging on to the last little bit of glory, right? So that's how I would describe Matt just off the cuff. Court McGee at 38, he's no spring chicken either, right? And, and has had some durability issues at times. But, man, he's got a little more left in the tank. And I believe when you're looking at these two guys right now, like if it was Matt Brown at 38 versus Court McGee right now at 38, I think we just got a straight pick him. Going to be a good fight, right? This is a very compromised version of Matt Brown. As for the details, let me talk about that first. Matt Brown's 23 and 19 overall, two and three in his last five fights, out of Cincinnati, Ohio, 42 years old, six foot in height with a 76 inch reach, trains out of strong style fight team and Immortal Martial Arts Center. I believe Immortal Martial Arts Center is his gym as well. So for Court McGee, who goes by the Crusher, 21 and 11 overall, two and three in his last five fights. So both guys are coming in two and three in their last five. For Court McGee, he is a slight favor here, currently sitting at minus 205. You got Matt Brown at plus 175. McGee happens to be out of Utah, 38 years old, 5'11 in height with a 75.5 inch reach out of the pit elevated fight team. A quick story here on Court McGee. He was a former high school student athlete, football player, basketball player. I believe was a very talented quarterback. Gets recruited to college. Signs a scholarship, I believe, to play quarterback at a smaller school, Division One, AA, Division Two, but then suffers a really bad knee injury. From there, kind of derails things, and now he's a mixed martial artist. But here's a guy who's a you know a longtime athlete. Matt Brown, I believe, he cut his teeth on the wrestling mat. You know that was sort of his back in the 1950s. <laughs> Actually, I'm the same age bracket as Matt Brown, so I shouldn't talk too much shit. All right, so let, let's talk Matt Brown here first. So he has a split in his last fight against Brian Barberina, a war. Prior fight beats Diego Lima by a round two knockout. Then his two fights before that, Carlos Condit, Miguel Baeza, loses those two fights. So his last four, he's one in three in his last four. The Miguel Baeza fight lost by a round two knockout. Let me get to this last fight, though. If you if you can watch it without, like, kind of doing this at times, I mean, I, I felt like Matt Brown was literally sust was, was sustaining what you would sustain as like repetitive head concussions. Uh, he looked like a guy who was having, you know, brain trauma in the fight and it was not easy to watch. I thought he should have retired after that fight. He was in Ohio. It was a good spot. I know he loses by split. Now he's 42. You can watch clips of him training. This guy is not quick anymore. Never was super fast anyway. He's got a, a, you know, a pension for danger. And you could see it when he does the interviews and talks. Oh, I'm a fighter. And I, you know, like on one side, he's a, he seems like a good family man and someone who cares about the people around him. On the other side, there's, like a, there's a warrior in him that just won't be put to rest. And I think, I think he's going to lose badly here. Um, I think Moneyline is amazingly good for Court McGee because he's a fighter who at least has more in the tank. And Matt Brown, shy of just simply giving you a slugfest and not giving up, I don't know where the speed... The volume, the accuracy, none of those things are there. And Brian Barbarena, not for nothing, I mean, he's a bit of a <laughs> junkyard dog too. 
not much technique, and they go to a back-and-forth war where neither guy really won. They both kind of lost, and they both took a lot of damage. Court McGee's an upgrade over that. Court McGee's a little more finesse. Court McGee's not going to just go out there and flail around for three rounds and expose himself. So a guy like Court McGee, I think, though he lost his last fight, round one got knocked out by Jeremiah Wells, and I get that, and people are going to point to that. Wells is a pretty good fighter, you know? And so wins over, for example, Ramiz Brahimash. That win for Court McGee, that's a quality win, man. Ramiz is better than Matt Brown. Now, if you go back a little further, you see Court McGee's lost to Carlos Condit and Sean Brady and Diego Lima and Sean Strickland and Ben Saunders and Santiago Pantanibio. Most of those guys are good. Now, the Diego Lima one, that's also going to throw some people off, right? Because didn't Diego Lima fight my man over here, Matt Brown, and then Diego Lima lost, got knocked out by Brown. So you're talking some MMA math. There you go. You can find yourself a reason. But look, long story short, at 42, Matt Brown is shot, guys. Um, the, the, he just doesn't have the ability that he used to have. I don't think he's able to go ahead here and give us more than a round of a decent fight. You know, so I, I feel like he falls apart. And at some point, you know, I don't know Court McGee as being a high-level finisher, right? That's not how we know of him. But we can see a, a situation where the ref has to just step in, has to save Matt Brown for himself. And if you're the UFC, by the way, just a little side note, you don't want to see this guy like, you know, get brain damage in there, do you? Like, I don't think we want to see this. So, you know, we may have a short leash. You know, we saw last week with, you know, Drew Dober seemed to be kind of coming back. He was on his back on the ground. Herb Dean steps in. In this situation here, could we see something similar? A few more stats on these two guys. Average fight time for Matt Brown, 9 minutes and 24 seconds compared to 13 minutes and 18 seconds for Court McGee. So Court is going longer, tends to go longer in his fights. For fight uh, fight statistics here for Matt Brown, averaging 3.77 strikes per minute, not much volume, compared to 4.68 for Court McGee. So McGee has, again, more volume. Strikes absorbed per minute, 2.94 for Matt Brown. That's not so bad. You'd think it would be higher based upon the way he fights, but it's uh, it's not that bad. 3.69 for Court McGee, so averaging a little more absorption rate there for Court McGee. Actually, not a higher rate, but absorbing a little more in terms of punches. For takedowns, you know, neither guy's much of a wrestler, but these stats are a little surprising. 1.71 takedowns per fight for Matt Brown. That's pretty. That's almost two. And then 1.86 for Court McGee. There's an X factor. Will someone try to get the fight to the ground? I don't know. I feel like they should, you know, mix things up, you know, keep their opponent off balance. Not sure. For takedown defense, 64% for Brown and 69% for McGee. So when it comes to takedown defense, offense, wrestling, the numbers are very similar. Striking, a little more volume for Court McGee. And what does it leave us with? Well, it leaves us with one guy being born in 1981 and one guy was born in 1984. And ultimately, you know, it's a three years difference. It's actually, wait a second, time out. How can these guys be three years apart here? Hold up. Um, <laughs> yeah, go figure. They're listed on Tapology as 42 for Matt Brown and 38 for Court McGee. 39, 40, 41, 42. That's four years apart. If you go to UFC stats, it says here that Matt Brown was born in 1981, January. And it says here that Court McGee was born in December of 1984. Um, uh, well, I guess it's so close, right? It's January, December. Anyway, so these guys are about four years apart. And I just think right now for Matt Brown, I, I'm going to have a hard time watching this fight if he's going to get himself beat up badly. He's a guy that intervention time, intervention time. The family needs to step in and say, dude, you're 42. It's time to like you know focus on the gym do some other things if he wins this fight though <laughs> then it's like you know all bets are off i'm wrong who's gonna listen to someone like me but he takes another beating like he took against brian barbarina and court mcgee maybe even finishes him then yeah it's just it's got to be time don't be surprised north carolina's you know it's a skip and a hop from ohio maybe court mcgee retires matt brown we see matt brown put the gloves down as he should after a very good career
That's a breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Oh, by the way, Court McGee, uh, I, I like him still by decision. I, I still think Matt Brown gets through the full three rounds, but gets his ass kicked. So give me Court McGee by decision. And if not by decision, that late round two, round three, it kind of adds up. Maybe Court McGee gets to a point where the referee has to step in. Matt Brown's not returning fire. So that's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Next fight. All right, boys and girls, making our way up the main car. We have a welterweight bout, 170 pounders. Tim Means, who goes by the Dirty Bird, versus Alex Morono, the Great White. Before we get into the breakdown, give you our pick to win. Like Alex Morono to win this fight by a split decision. That is our prediction. Split prop prices are not out yet. I do have some prop prices for you, though. When we do the breakdown, I'll, I'll give them to you. Moreno's the favorite here at minus 225. You got Means at plus 190. As for their details, Means is 32, 14, and 1 overall. Lots of fights, right? 3 into it his last 5. Out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, 39 years old, 6 foot 2 in height with a 75 inch reach. Trains out of Fit and HB. As for the great white, Alex Morano, 22 and 8 overall, 4 1 in his last 5 fights. Based out of Houston, Texas, 32 years old, 5'11 in height, so giving up about 3 inches in height. With a 72 inch reach, about 3 inch advantage there for Tim Means in reach. And for Morano, he's out of Fortis MMA, also does some training out of Gracie, Barra, the Woodlands. Okay, let's get into our notes here. So, Morono's an intelligent fighter, maximizes his potential. He's not like the most athletic guy, all jacked, whatever, but he's the kind of person where good fighter IQ, smart, and again, maximizes what God has given him. Surprisingly, this will be his 18th UFC fight. I, I kind of forgot he's been in the UFC this long. And his record in the UFC, 11-5-1. So, Moreno, for whatever you think of the guy, he's amassed a pretty impressive record in the UFC. And at his age, probably still has quite a bit left in the tank, right? Now, though we acknowledge some of the advantages for Moreno in this fight, the money line is off. Okay, Money line should be, I would say, like minus 150, minus 160 for Moreno. And I'll explain to you why in a second. For some reason, we're at minus 225. I guess Tim Means is just getting older. You know, record recently has been... But man, Tim Means is a, is a veteran, has fought a lot of guys, and, and shouldn't be just overlooked entirely out here, I guess, right? Now, neither fighter has much finishing ability in this match. If you look at their past fights, recent fights, a lot of these fights are going to decision. Now, do you really want to be holding a Morono ticket at minus 225 if it goes to a close decision, that's what I'm saying. I think there's some better spots here than the money line. So Morono averages 5.22 strikes per minute while absorbing 4.09. It's pretty good output. I'd say that's about average for the welterweight division. And absorbing 4.09, I mean, maybe that number could be a little lower. Uh, if you see him fight, limited head movement, doesn't mind taking a few punches. But again, it's still a positive ratio, so I'm, I'm being picky here. He'll need to use his striking in this matchup to edge out means. I don't see a finish again, so it's going to be by points, right? Simply throwing more and landing more. Morona's not much of a grappler, um, but does need to be careful of Tim's takedown attempts. Tim's is not Tim's not a wrestler, Tim means, but he does have like flashes of judo throws and tosses, which he you know might factor into his game plan at some point. Now for Tim means making his walk into the UFC for the 27th time. Yeah, this is 27th UFC fight. Forget about total fights. Right, he went professional almost 20 years ago. At at 39 years old, his best days, obviously athletically, are probably behind him. Right, um, so I would say, look, he's not as fast as he used to be, and he never was very fast. <laughs> so quickness is eluding him. He's a long guy, but the brain seems to still be there. Doesn't seem to be a guy who's punch drunk. Seems to have pretty good fighter IQ, decent volume. Right, means shouldn't be overlooked in this spot. I've said that already a few times. I'll remind you again. We could see him making this a very close fight, right? It's going to be a live crowd. Who knows? Maybe we get some, you know, Tim Means sympathizers out there. Means has an incredible chin. 
Imagine this guy has fought a total of what? Let me look at my notes here. This will be his, if you combine like amateur, exhibition, all that kind of stuff, he's fought 51 times. <laughs> this will be his 52nd uh, fight. So, yeah, in that period of time, he's only been knocked out one time. So, yeah, the man's got an incredible chin. Now, you could point to the fact that he got knocked out in a recent fight. Matter of fact, I believe it was his last fight when he got knocked out against Jeremiah Wells. But in my man's defense, for Tim Means, I mean, Jeremiah Wells is a pretty hot fighter right now, and I'm not talking about his looks. The guy is a little bit in fuego. Oh, no, let me let me backtrack. It wasn't Jeremiah Wells. Um, he was supposed to fight Jeremiah Wells. That fight got canceled. He got choked out by Kevin Holland. So scratch all that. I apologize. To, uh, Tim, Tim Means uh, has only been knocked out once, and that was Nico Price, 2019, round one. Nico Price, a bit of a, a badass. But yes, otherwise, besides that knockout loss, he has been submitted a few times. That's one of his Achilles heels. But back to the point of what we were saying here, Tim Means does have a, a granite chin. Um, he had been submitted six times throughout his career and twice in his last six fights. I think that's enough. There's enough there, along with Morono having some submissions that you may want to look at that submission prop for Morono. We'll get back to that here in just a few moments. Now, the other critiques that we have for Tim Means is that he's Lack of striking speed. If you watch him on film, he's a tall, long guy. That long frame takes some time to get moving. Like the brain tells the arm and the shoulder to hit the punch, and then the body, it's, you know, tall people, people like Shaquille O'Neal, that kind of, you know, he's not that big. But you get the idea. He's not a smaller, he's not a guy built like Triple C, like Cejudo, um, or even someone built like, you know, any of those smaller fighters you could think of. He's tall and he's long. It takes a while for his stuff to get going against faster opponents smaller and quicker that would be morono i think he loses something there he gets hit first he you know he gives up a few punches in the exchange and the opponent seems to get the best of him now i'm not saying morono's fast <laughs> i'm just saying morono probably will be faster than tim means in this matchup now it's part of the reason why means lost to max griffin as well if you go back and look at the max griffin fight i think on the feet against opponents like that that he would have beaten maybe 10 years ago um he's he just not he never was fast and now he's you know even slower um I will say this, Means know how to use, knows how to use I'm sorry, his tall frame to execute throws and, and sweeps. You'll watch him pick guys up or get them off balance because he's a taller fighter, get a leg in between their legs, get a trip, get a takedown. He's only averaging like a little over, I think, a, a takedown and a half per fight, so he's not a big takedown guy. But, I mean, if he were to incorporate it the right way, this could be something I think will help him, you know, win over, at least win over the judges, right? Because we have a close fight back and forth. They're both landing about the same amount of punches. Both guys have landed maybe one or two hard punches. No one's fallen down. It's like, what's the difference? Well, it could be a takedown or two and some top control. And I will say this, even though Tim Means doesn't come off as like the grappler type and, you know, he's not known for like top position and stuff, that long frame can be a pain in the ass to get out from under. So when he does get people down, he's done it before, he eats up some clock. And again, I want to emphasize, if he wins this fight, I don't see it being a knockout. You know, Tim Means is not much of a knockout guy at this point in his career. It's probably via the scorecards. And then how does that happen? Hopefully, he'll get to cut on his opponent. Uh, hopefully, he, he lands a few more notable strikes. Because numbers-wise, the numbers don't lie, Moroto's landing more strikes. So, Moroto's going to be throwing more and landing more. And if that's the case, if it's just based upon that, then you're going with Morono. And if you are going with Morono, I get it. Uh, the numbers support him winning the fight. He is younger. Uh, the record in the UFC is un unbelievable. Um, and last, let's say, 10 fights or so, that sample size... Morono's doing better. He's the one kind of still on an upward trajectory, or at least maintaining, whereas you see Tim Means kind of, you know, going backwards, right? Okay. 
Um, the betting spots like for this fight. The fight going over one and a half rounds at minus 275. Fight goes to the distance at minus 140. Morono by decision at plus 150. And we'll look to sprinkle the split props. Look, we play splits a lot. <laughs> I get it. We probably overdo it at times. But this just seems to me like when you look at the analytics here, you've got two guys with low finish rates. Um, veteran savvy, high fighter IQ. will do what's necessary to win. Moreno's the kind of guy who will do that. He'll extend the fight, look for the scorecards. And I think either guy feels like they're up a round or two going into the third round. That fighter's probably letting off the gas and taking the smart way out of here because contrary to what the fans want, you know, these are two higher fighter IQ guys that are looking to wake up tomorrow morning with the least amount of facial damage possible, have their breakfast with their family, enjoy the win. That's not to say that Tim Meese is not a tough guy. Again, 50-something fights. And Morono is 11-5 and 1 in the UFC. Quality fighters. But again, they're tacticians. They're using technique. And those guys tend to go where? To the scorecards. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Okay, making our way up the card. Next fight's going to be a light headway bout. Carlos Olberg versus Ihor Pretoria. Before we get into the details, we'll give you our pick to win. We like Ihor Pretoria by round two knockout. That is our prediction. But it was not easy to get there. And here's a fight that may be one of the toughest fights for us in the entire card to find a lean. This minus 380 money line, though, on Carlos Olberg. Be very careful with this. This price tag is he just overpriced. I believe maybe he should be favored. Has some good experience in the UFC. More UFC experience than Ihor. But not much more experience, and definitely not more experience in total when you compare Ehor's overall resume. So, tough fight to, to break down, tough fight to cap, but at minus 380, again, I don't mean for the line to throw us off completely, but that is, that's just way too much. And I feel like this could be that parlay breaker of the card, a spot where a lot of people will put him into a parlay thinking, you're safe, Ehor uh, has gotten sloppy against guys, of course they have a common opponent, Ehor got his ass kicked by Nicole, uh, Nikolai Nigamorano, whereas Carlos Olberg finished Nigamorano. I get it, uh, but minus 380, <laughs> do not get that. As for the details in these two fighters, go over those real quickly with you. Olberg goes by Blackjack, he's 7-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. Out of New Zealand, 32 years old, 6'4", 4 height, excuse me, with a 77-inch reach, and he trains out of city kickboxing. As for Ihor Pretoria, 19-3 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He's out of Ukraine, Kiev, Ukraine to be specific, 26 years old, 11 months, so uh, 4 or 5 years younger. About six years younger than uh, Carlos Olberg. And for Ihor, he's six foot three in height, about the same height with a 75-inch reach out of Legat. So height and reach-wise, we do have about a one to two-inch advantage there for Carlos Olberg. Okay, let's talk here about uh, our breakdown of this fight. So Olberg is a talented kickboxer that trains at one of the best gyms in the world, right? City Kickboxing with the likes of Adesanya and company. He's on a three-fight winning streak with victories over Charant. Ninjukui and Negamurano. He's also shown a lot of improvements over those fights. If you go back, for example, when he lost against Kennedy Ninjuku, that was a tough fight to watch because he's more or less winning all of round one and he gasses out. And you're like, oh boy, is this guy just all looks and, and no skills, but has rebounded well from that point and it looked pretty good. Olberg scored knockouts in five of his seven wins. He enters this fight off of back to back first round knockout wins over UFC opponents. He's a high-output striker, landing 8.27 strikes per minute. You do like that. Now, our concerns for Olberg are this. His cardio, after round one specifically, has been limited at times. Otherwise, I mean, we like what you see in first round, but second round hits, it's like, ugh. And then also, limited MMA experience. I'm going to emphasize MMA experience. Had some kickboxing experience, but 
MMA wise, not many fights. We'll talk about that more in a second. Um, we do expect him to come in here with more improvements, looking even better. Because again, last few fights has done a good job. Now, on that note, the analytics suggest to us that Olberg is severely overpriced here. He opened at like minus three hundo. At one point, he was minus 325, minus 350. Now, all the way up to minus 380 at the time of this breakdown, it's just too much. If you're planning to parlay Olberg, consider this, right? Consider parlaying the under two and a half round prop instead. Don't believe it's out yet, but when it comes out, the under two and a half probably will be comparable to the same price tag you're playing, paying for Olberg just to win outright. And my thinking is, look, at some point, we're probably going to see some fireworks. Someone gets a finish. And we don't know who it's really going to be. I, I think that Ehor has tons of power. He can upset Olberg here. And Olberg can obviously pick apart Ehor. Maybe Ehor gets tired. But to pay minus 380, find yourself that under two and a half round prop. I think you'll find yourself in a similar price tag and you're protected from both sides. Now, Olberg is more technical striker of the two. Whereas you've got Ehor kind of like, you know, winging stuff. So when it comes to striking technique and volume, Olberg is the superior striker. Olberg, again, lands 8.27 strikes per minute comparing to, let's say, 4.72 for Ehor, it's almost double the amount. And so from that standpoint, if it fights on the feet for a long period of time, you imagine Olberg, so long as his gas is not a problem, he should be the, the better fighter of the two. Now, as for Ehor, he's the epitome of, I'm gonna knock this guy out, or I'm gonna get knocked out in the process, or knockout or bust, they would call it, right? He earned his UFC contract with a finish on Contender Series two years ago. Seems like yesterday he got his contract, but 2021, so two years ago, he got his contract. He then proceeded to get crushed in his opening fight, or his UFC debut against Nikolai Negamorano took a beating. Um, quite frankly, it was hard to watch. The, the fight, <clears throat> it shouldn't have been stopped earlier because he was on his feet. He, he got called out on his feet, but his mouthpiece falls out, and he takes a variety of hits after that, including some knees to the face. I don't know if he lost some teeth in that fight. Uh, it was ugly. Showed a ton of heart, a lot of heart, but man, he's a reckless fighter, and it's like he's on the edge of, like, it's a fine line. He's, he's exciting, but he's reckless, you know? So he's fought now 25 total mixed martial arts fights, including his amateur career, and that is a big deal because you compare that to Olberg, who's fought eight times. You know, experience matters. Now, granted, we're talking about 25 total fights for uh, Ehor that may have been most of them in lower levels, whereas this guy, Olberg, has kind of gotten thrusted to UFC pretty quickly. But still, 25 fights compared to eight is a big difference. So when it comes to actual overall experience, I'm giving the edge here to Ehor. <clears throat> now, 15 of Ehor's 19 wins were via finish, 11 via KO, and four submissions. And a little, just a little factoid for you. My man has more finishes. He has double the amount of finishes that Olberg has in total fights. You see what I'm saying? So, once again, like, there's a lot more experience on the side of Mr. Ehor. Now, for Ehor, he absorbs 5.54 strikes per minute while landing 4.72. Not good. Negative striking ratio. It's a byproduct of his brawling fighting style, his careless approach. If he can't knock out Olberg within the first two rounds... It's our opinion he probably falls apart, probably loses energy, gets behind the scorecards, maybe takes some chances and get himself finished. This probably comes down to gas tanks, though, right? Or who gets first? Who gets hurt first, right? In closing, we're going with Ihor Pretoria to do this due to his fighter experience and finishing ability. But again, regardless of who wins the fight, we're confident the judges will not be involved. So find yourself some unders. I mean, there's probably going to be even money on under one and a half. Under two and a half, fight no distance, we'll get you some chalky prices, minus 300, minus 400 in that range. But I want a safe spot. <laughs> I want a safe spot. And I think minus 380 on Olberg just to win outright is not a safe spot. It is a fight. It's two grown-ass men. Ehor can be dangerous, right? So from the betting perspective, we like these spots here. The fight going under two and a half rounds. Fight doesn't start round three. Fight doesn't go the distance. 
Ehor by round one KO, and then Olberg inside the distance. No prices on those yet. Uh, I apologize. We're waiting for those prices to come out. But when they come out, we'll update them on our tip sheet and also on our newsletter. So you'll find them in those areas. For Olberg, he's the superior guy. I get it. I get it in many ways. But he ain't minus 380 superior. <laughs> so once again, we're going to take a flyer here on Ihor Pretoria, the Ukrainian fighter. Hopefully he's got the heart and the gusto to overcome and give us a better performance than he did against Nikolov. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move on. Making our way up the car, we've got a welterweight bout. 170 pounders. Daniel Rodriguez, the American, probably a Latin American, You're from Mexico, uh, versus Ian Machado Gary. Machado is now his middle name. He's adopted this name from his partner, his wife, as a way of being like, you know, like very 2023 progressive. Instead of her just taking his name, it's like, you know, we'll do the whole thing. And I believe uh, she has a, a child from a prior relationship. He, he's the, like the adopted stepfather stepping in. So, Good for you, Ian Machado. Very well done. Before we get to this breakdown, though, I kind of got off in a tantrum there. Let's talk about the method of victory and who's going to win. Ian Gary by split decision. Here I go again. Here I go with the split decision. I'll explain it to you. I'll give you the methods of, of why I think it's going to happen, or at least my methodology, right? My calculations, the math. Um, you got Gary at minus 280, Rodriguez at plus 235. It's a welterweight bout, 170 pounders. Again, give me Ian Gary to win. Same thing like Morono. Do you really want to be holding that Ian Gary, you know, uh, slip at minus 280? Let's pretend you're putting 280 bucks to win 100 bucks. I mean, I am not that confident in Ian Gary in this spot. So that right there tells me, okay, I'm not confident the line. I don't, I don't like the line. Now, Ian Gary at minus 190. Now we're talking some bit. Now we could talk business, you know, 200 bucks to make, you know, 100 bucks. You know, I'm going to part ways at that point with my money. But at minus 280, probably grows to minus 300 or so. It's as if he's fighting no one. Uh, Rodriguez is a really good fighter. Now, he had his moments in his last you know, fight or two, which we'll talk about. But, <laughs> I mean, plus 235 for D-Rod is a bargain. It's a bargain. And so we're going to predict still Ian wins, but a sweat and a half. And from that perspective, I think you'd find some better spots here than teetering with that minus 280 on Gary, who's going to end up being... Such a popular parlay piece, right? You could sort of see it coming. The details, these two fighters. So Daniel Rodriguez, who goes by D-Rod, 17-3 overall. 4-1 in his last five. <clears throat> slight dog here. Well, not, no, not slight dog. He's now the proverbial dog. Las Vegas, Nevada is home for him, 36 years old. 6-1 in high with a 74-inch reach. Trains out of Syndicate MMA. As for Ian Machado Gary, who goes by the future, undefeated, 11-0. He's 5-0 in his last five. Based out of Ireland, 25 years old. Six foot three and high with a 74 inch reach. Well, I say based out of he's from Ireland. He's got the Irish accent, but he's out now actually training out of Kilcliffe FC in Florida, which is a great move for him. And nothing against wherever he was training before, but I mean, Kilcliffe is such an amazing gym, right? Okay, let's do the breakdown here. So Gary is an exciting Irish prospect with an undefeated record. He's won for his first four UFC fights, so 4-0 in the UFC. Included two knockouts in those first four fights, knocked out his last opponent. So he's got some finishing ability that's transferred over from the Cage Warriors, regional scene, whatever, up to the UFC. You do like that. High output, all three rounds. Lands 6.79 strikes per minute. If he can't knock out Rodriguez, right, which would be the most smoothest path to victory, the best the best version of victory, he'll likely have to win on point, and that's just landing more strikes, which he can do. Remember, 6.79 per minute, which we'll get back to that number here in a little bit. <clears throat> 
Neither fighter is much of a grappler. So I expect the full I expect the full fight to be playing out on the feet, stand up fight, kickboxing fight, Muay Thai looking fight. If you're a Rodriguez guy, it's just boxing. He's more of a boxer. Gary will be slightly taller, but they have the same reach. Okay, so there's no, I think, physical advantages there. Now, the keys to victory for Gary are this, to avoid Rodriguez's power and to land the more significant strikes. I know I'm like Captain Obvious here, but if the fight plays out on the feet, if it's a three-round affair, we're going to the scorecards. How do you win? You're going to win not just volume. These are both high-volume guys. We'll get to Rodriguez in a second. That 6.79 per minute is good for Gary, but there needs to be significant moments. Maybe you do the damage, your opponent's bleeding or something. That's how I believe they win. Whoever wins this fight, it's going to be because of those things. They're both they're both going to dish out a lot of, of strikes, a lot of volume for both guys. So again, the most notable strikes, or maybe someone getting knocked down, may be the way the tide turns for one of the fighters. Now for Rodriguez, he's a quality veteran with excellent boxing. Like Gary, he's very high volume. For example, He's landing 7.42 strikes per minute. So it's not a lot more than Gary. It's in the same wheelhouse, but it's still more. So if we're just going based upon the numbers and the math here is is not one or two fights. Rodriguez is a, it's a good sample size for Rodriguez. And also for Ian, that's four fights total. So it's a good enough sample size where these are real numbers and not numbers from a small sample. With that said, if it just plays out on the numbers, here's the issue for Rodriguez. The hype is behind Ian Gary. Let's say they both land around the same amount of strikes. Uh, I don't want to be there if I'm Rodriguez. I don't want to be holding that slip if I'm Rodriguez. That's where, again, the significant strikes will matter. Prete assuming, I said pretending, assuming we're not going to have any takedowns. You see, again, we're, where would the difference makers be? It would be a little bit of blood on somebody um, or someone who's landed the bigger bombs a few times to you know win over the judges for that round or two. All right. Rodriguez has a unique ability to weaponize his cardio as well. I love this, right? As his opponents tend to fade, which I don't believe that'll happen here with Gary. In the past, the recent fights, his opponents start fading, and this guy, he picks up the pace. He maintains. He has that 7.42 strikes per minute. He's hitting you with volume. just basically wears you down, right? He's also very durable, Rodriguez, that is. In 27 career fights, he has never been knocked out. So here's another thing. Gary, good finisher, yes. Rodriguez, pretty good finisher. I don't think as high of a rate as even what Gary has right now. But Rodriguez has a chin. And so if he's got a good cardio and a good chin, younger fighter here, Ian Gary, two and two in terms of finish. I mean, two two fights finish, two fight decision here in the UFC. I could see this fight again pressing towards a decision. I think Gary will have his work cut out trying to be the first person to knock out Rodriguez. Now, Rodriguez is known for his strong cardio. But he looked very tired in the end of his last fight. And you go back and you watch this. He gets submitted in his last fight in the final round. He looked tired. And I'm like, what happened to the guy with the amazing cardio? I, so I don't know. Was there an article or, or interview that came out about what may have happened to him pre-fight, bad campers? I feel like there was something. But it wasn't the, the guy we were used to. That's a little bit of a concern for me. as the first time watching him, you know, like, like I said, just sort of lag out, man. Uh, not have enough energy. Anyway, almost all of his wins are over average fighters. That's another concern of ours. And maybe the biggest win of his career was over Tim Means in 2020, and that's an older Tim Means. That surprised me. Rodriguez has fought some good competition, but much like Johnny Walker we mentioned earlier, when he faces the better opponents, he's not winning those fights. Uh, doesn't make him a bad fighter. There's, like they said, there's levels to this game. And so when fighters step up in levels, they tend to have a hard time. And for Rodriguez, I'd put him in that boat. If I can give some examples here, let me just pull up his resume right quick. For Rodriguez, 17-3, first of all, which is you know, a phenomenal record. But lost to Nicholas Dalby 
Neil Magny, and that was in the UFC. Before that, the loss out of the UFC. Let's not even look at that. It doesn't really matter. But the wins in the UFC, Jing Liang Lee, Kevin Lee, Preston Parsons, you know, Dwight Grant, Gabe Green, Tim Means. I mean, all together, somewhat of a, a decent, you know, roster of guys. But some, I mean, look, you can just be honest. It's not a very difficult schedule. And so, we, you know, we, we've seen him face some guys like Nicholas Dobby. You'd think he would win that fight. Or Neil Magny. No, Magny takes him to the third round, chokes him out. Uh, so is Daniel Rodriguez maybe in the past a little overrated? Maybe. I like him enough to say this. I think it's a good test for Gary. I like this matchup. This is not like a pushover. Gary's going to walk through him. It'll be easy. The UFC is legitimately testing the kid. And I wonder what the what the angle is. Do they Are they okay with him dropping a fight as long as it's exciting and he learns from it? I mean, even if Gary lost... He, he's still, you know, he's still going upwards. He's still so young. But they're definitely not giving him a pushover and saying, oh, here's an easy fight for him to go to, to go to 12-0. and 0. This should be a good fight. Again, I think it's going to be very close. Ian, Gary, by split decision, that's our prediction. I'll give you our betting spots right now. The spots we like for the betting perspective are going to be the fight going over two and a half rounds. That's currently lined at, give me one second here. I should have had that handy. In my little book here, I didn't have it handy. So Ian Gary, Ian Gary, forgive me, Ian Gary, over two and a half rounds is lined currently at minus 160. Now, it's currently at minus 160. The problem with that is that's listed like in the general reference area on uh, best uh, bestfightodds.com. It's not listed yet on DraftKings or the other books, so it'll probably move around to, let's say, I don't know, um, it'll move around. It'll go up to minus 200, maybe down to minus 140. Somewhere. So the over two and a half, minus 160. Fight goes the distance at minus 140. That's a price that, again, I think will we'll, we'll change here a little bit before the fight kicks off. And then Gary by decision is plus 130. That's just him by decision. Interesting the books have it at that price, right? That's just over a pick em. That tells you they also see this as a high likely outcome. And then we'll sprinkle the split props. Those prop prices are not out yet. If you want those betting spots or our tip sheet, Subscribe to our newsletter. The link's down below. There's a free version of our newsletter subscriptions, and there's a paid version. The paid version is a whopping five bucks a month. It's your way of getting full access to everything, our full tip sheet, our, our notes, our resource links, um, so on and so forth. And if also, it's a way for you to support our channel and our content. So we appreciate you guys who subscribe to our newsletter. Now, last two weeks, I talked about it recently, also newsletter, been rough. We're on back-to-back -back losing streak. We're on a losing streak. First time we're on a losing streak this year. Back-to-back -back losing cards in the UFC. Looking to bounce back here with UFC ABC number four. In any event, I digress. That's Ian Gary versus Daniel Rodriguez. And we're going to go with Ian Machado Gary to win by a split. Let's move on. Up next, we have the co-main event, light heavyweight battle, 205 pounders, Anthony Lionheart Smith versus Johnny Walker. Before we get to the details, we'll give you our pick to win. We like Anthony Smith by a submission in round three. That prop price is currently plus 2,200. Cross our fingers, right? Okay, let's get to the details in this fight before we give you our notes. Light heavyweight bout, Mr. Smith is 36 and 17. Wow, lots of fights. Three to his last five. We got a pick em price tag on these both these boys here for Anthony Smith out of Omaha, Nebraska. Shout out to my Nebraska brothers and sisters out there. 34 years old, six foot four in height with a 76 inch reach, training at a factory X Muay Thai. And also Skywalker 101 Boxing Academy. 
For Johnny Walker, 20-7 and seven overall. Lots of experience, not quite as much as Lionheart, but a lot of experience, 3-2 in his last five. Out of Brazil, now based out of Southampton, England, because he's training out of SBG Ireland. He's bounced around quite a bit, been at a handful of gyms, seems to be happy, though, now that he's in Ireland. Very close relationship with his coach. Mr. Walker is 31 years old, 6'6 six six in height with an 82-inch reach. So a massive man. 6'6 six six gives him about a 2-3-inch to three inch height advantage over Smith, who I don't believe Smith is actually 6'4". I, I mean, I shouldn't doubt the guy, but seems like he's more like 6'2 or 6'3". We'll see when they face off. I imagine Johnny Walker will be taller, which he, he's usually taller. And for reach, now we've got 6 inches for reach in the, in the side of Walker. He's a kicker, likes to work at range. That could definitely benefit him. Um, I believe Anthony will do some things to neutralize that, but nonetheless, that's where you like Walker at range. This is the larger cage. Um, it's a fight night event, but it's not being held in the apex, right? So we have a full cage that should benefit someone like Walker, who's very athletic, likes to do jumping, spinning, all kind of things like that. All right, as for the breakdown here, so Anthony Smith by round three submission. That is our prediction, and uh, we'll see if we're right, huh? Walker will be the taller fighter. We mentioned before a few inches of reach and height. He throws Big body kicks, front kicks, leg kicks, head kicks, um, a lot of variety of strikes, right? He's not a big lower leg kick guy. His kicks, like I said, all over the body from top to bottom. His reach advantage only makes it easier for him to touch his opponents from distance. In the case here with Anthony, Anthony has to close distance, right? He, he just can't stay at range. If he does, there's a, a, a mathematical dis difference there in size, and Walker would just pick him apart. Walker sports a very high finish rate. He's earned finishes in his last six wins, five by knockout and one by submission. Now, Smith is not going to roll over for him, right? So the idea that he can come in here and like finish Smith easily, or Smith, Smith's been finished recently too as well, I get it, but getting Smith out of there is not an easy task. He's a veteran. He's been fighting this long for a long reason. Now, though we like Smith to edge out the win here, right, by split decision, I'm sorry, by submission, we're not underestimating Walker at all. Walker's faced good competition, and he knows what it takes to win in the UFC. The biggest concerns we have for Walker, though, are his durability, for example. He's been finished in four of his last six defeats. Yeah, so he's not going to go to the cards. He's getting knocked out, and for the, oh my gosh, and one of those finishes, by the way, I shouldn't laugh. It's it's been making its way around. It's on. It's been on Twitter. There's been some clips of it, but it's a finish of him from a few years ago where he's getting knocked out like almost multiple times. It appears flopping around the mat. Um, the guy he fought, I forgot the name offhand. Let me look it up here for you guys so you can find it quicker for yourself. I included the clip of it in the newsletter. So if you're subscribed to our newsletter. In the breakdown, at some point in the middle of the breakdown, I put a clip there for the YouTube video of him versus this guy, um, the fight that I'm referring to. And that was against Henrique Silva back in Jungle Fight 88, 2016. And you go back and watch this fight, I'm not kidding you, with about seven seconds into the first round, he Walker comes forward and kind of gets off his feet like some kind of a flying knee or something. And the guy just hits him with a simple straight right hand. Walker goes, he goes parallel to the ground, like vertical, whatever, uh, hits the back of his head in the ground, clearly stunned. From there, it's like a movie scene. It's like, a, it's like, is this for real? He's getting knocked side to side. He gets back up, gets get knocked down. He's flopping around. Finally, the ref steps in and says, no mas. And even after the ref steps in, you see Walker is like flopping around, um, still trying to get up. He's completely, he's looking for the guy to hit him. You know, he's completely out of it. Um, funny, not funny. I'm laughing because it was a silly looking moment, but I say this throughout the course of his career, Walker has had 
moments of being fragile. Um, so it goes back to even before you know his time in the UFC. But uh, that link again for that uh, clip of that fight is in our newsletter. For our other guy here, Mr. Smith, the veteran, this will mark his 63rd career fight. 63rd career combat sports fight. That's like any amateur experience, any grappling or boxing or all combined. So I wonder if he gets a 70. Jeez, that's a lot of fights. He is an intelligent fighter, high fighter IQ. If you don't know already, he's an analyst on ESPN, does some of the, the coverage for UFC events. Also has a podcast, which I don't know how active the podcast is. He was doing the podcast, I believe, with Laura Sanko a little bit. Then I don't know what happened. It kind of tailed off. Five, five, six minutes of hearing him speak, you could tell. Guy's sharp, not punch drunk, very intelligent. And analysis is on point. He knows the mixed martial arts game, understands the politics, understands all sides, promotion, the fighters. He knows thyself. He's realistic about his capabilities. He's not talking about winning a title or running, you know, running up the ladder. He's just fighting a few fights here and there, having a good time, obviously limiting the damage he sustains. He's also fought, though, in the process, some killers. His resume has John Jones, Glover Teixeira, Magomed Ankalaev, Mauricio Rua, Rashad Evans, Thiago Santos, and like a guy like Alexander Rakic, who's actually pretty good. Like in that list, you've got Rua, former champion, Evans, former champion, Teixeira, former champion, John Jones, former champion. And then the other guys are like, you know, title contenders. So that's the kind of people that Smith has been fighting throughout his career. The key to victory for Smith in this fight is going to be pretty simple. Avoid the power shots from Walker, meaning like that big flying knee or the, the big spinning kick. Or, you know, Walker's got Amazon long legs and big feet. If you get touched by that, you are going to feel it. And at this age, we've seen Smith kind of buckle in recent fights. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of like Andre Orlovsky. God bless these guys. They're, they're warriors. Been fighting for a long time. But Andre Orlovsky now, if you, you tap him a few times the wrong way, he's out of there. He had a submission loss like last year where someone went to go get the rear naked choke before they could even get it in. He was like, no, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, not saying that Smith is doing all that. But if you look at some recent fights, you can see Smith has had some issues with durability as well. If Smith can drag this fight into the second and third rounds, he'll be live for a submission. That's my thinking. Walker is not a low fighter IQ fighter. I'm not saying that, but he can make enough mistakes. He'll, he'll try a spinning back fist when he doesn't need it. Next thing you know, he's got Smith on his back. So I just, you know, concern myself with Walker making a mistake. If this was a five round fight, for example, I would say submission round four, round five for Smith, because again, longer we go, I could see a mistake here by Walker. Now, let's look at Smith's submission ability. Let's talk about his numbers here. Four of Smith's last five wins have been via submission. It didn't dawn upon me until the numbers, I looked it up, and I'm like, damn, he is kind of evolving into a submission first kind of fighter. It makes sense again. He's getting older. Limited damage. Uh, your, your punching power diminishes. You want to extend yourself like any athlete, basketball player, football your game evolves. You start doing other things that you weren't doing as much before. You start doing less of the other things you could do when you're more athletic. And in the case of Smith, should we be surprised that a high fighter IQ fighter would make these adjustments at the end of his career and now become heavily a submission fighter? So point is this, I think the path to victory for Smith is likely submission. One little side note though, Johnny Walker has only been submitted once. So you can argue that he's not easy to submit. Um, and though gets knocked out, you know, uh, maybe we see a club and sub, right? I don't know. I, I just feel like the case for, for Smith here, it's either by decision or submission, right? I, I can see those would be the likely path. Now, but as I said that to myself, I realized 
Smith by knockout wouldn't shock anyone either just because of the history of, of Walker, right? So tough to predict, right? A lot of options here that could happen, a lot of variants. Now, Walker, a little side note on him. He tends to come up short when he steps up in competition. You could say the same thing about Smith, though. You could say the same thing. But here's my example for Walker. He fought Santos. Diago Santos lost that fight. Jamal Hill obviously lost the fight. Corey Anderson lost the fight. Nikita Krylov. Those are his last four losses, and those are all in the UFC. Now, in between, he fights guys that are almost at that level, but kind of right below it and gets those wins. Against these guys, not so much. I could make a case, if I was in the court of law, that Mr. Anthony Lionheart Smith is in the same league as fighters like Corey Anderson, Nikita Krylov, and at that point, Diago Santos was aging. I can't quite compare him to Jamal Hill because Jamal Hill is the damn champion right now, so you're going to be crazy now. But the point is, if I told you Corey Anderson, Nikita Krylov, Diago Santos two two years ago or so, and Anthony Smith now, are those guys all in the same league? I would say yes. And so in part because of that, another reason for us to at least rationalize why Lionheart Smith could get the win here. I will also say this before we talk about the last the bets here. At first glance, I did favor Walker. I thought, well, he's just younger, man. He's bigger. He's taller. He, you know, he's, come on, man. It's just simple, right? Simple analysis. Yeah, I guess. And then the numbers, you look at them more and more and you peel it back and you realize this is priced accordingly, right? This is a pick em. Uh Book's got this one right. It can go either way. So if you want to actually the main line, how, how can I tell you not to do it? Take a chance. But it is like flipping a coin. Um, I think you're better off here looking at some, some props. And then if you want to take a stab at these like far out props, like the plus 2200 for a submission or by split decision or something of that nature, you're better off because if you're laying, let's say minus 105, you're putting 100 bucks up on Walker to win 100 bucks, right? If he lost, you wouldn't be shocked and the same would go for Smith. There's just not a heavy read. So yeah, I'm, the money line doesn't attract me very much to this fight. The spots we like from a betting perspective are going to be the fight not going to decision. Now that's chalky at minus 380. I get it, but I'm better off parlaying that and some other chalky line somewhere and just calling it a day instead of playing a side here. Just my philosophy on this fight. Fight starts round number two. That prop price is not out yet, but I believe that price will be interesting. Fight starts round number two because of the proclivity of these guys to get a finish and the high finish rates recently and the durability issues. This will be a fight where everyone's be like, oh yeah, no decision. So fight starts round two. Look, Smith is a veteran. They can slow down for five minutes, get acclimated before they get to round two. That can happen. So that prop price, when it comes out, might be something that we have on our radar. Again, check into our newsletter for our full tip sheet. The link for our newsletter is down below. Now, Walker into the distance is plus 130. Smith ITD is plus 145. More or less the same price tag. The books are telling you, we think the likelihood of either guy getting a finish is the same. Now, Smith by submission, any submissions plus 575. That is a shocker. We, we understand the fight to pick him. The books agree it's a pick him. Our analysis says, pick him. Okay, we're good. Even if you're a casual fan just saying, oh, but the Walker guy's a little younger, he's spry, he's taller, you know, he's the one. Okay, so let's say you think Walker should be like a minus 140, minus 150 favorite. I got it, I got it. Smith by submission at plus 575, give me some of that all day. That's kind of disrespectful, actually. I mean, I, I that line maybe should be like plus 250, plus 300. Five of his last six wins, right? We talked about it before. This is his method of victory. And if, if the book is saying it's a 50-50, he's got a chance to win, this is the way he would win. Anyway, just some thoughts on that fight, guys. I don't know if you agree, disagree. Give me some comments. Give me some feedback. But we're going to take the veteran here 
Anthony, Antonio, Lionheart Smith to win the fight. Round three submission. Book it plus twenty two hundo on the on that spot right there. We'll see what happens. Keep their fingers crossed. Let's move on to the main event. And we're up to the main event. Heavyweight clash. The big boys. Well, one is a big boy, Jarzino Rosenstrike. Jolton Almeida is a light heavyweight, kind of like pretending to be a heavyweight, but doing a damn good job of it. So he's not quite 265, but you can expect Jarzino Rosenstrike will be upwards around. I don't believe he comes in 265, but he comes in around that heavier end. So these boys score off in the main event. Before we give you the details, let me give you the pick to win. Almeida by round two, ground and pound. That prop price is currently sitting at plus 1,100. Now, if you're thinking, oh, this guy's not doing analysis, he just looked at his last fight, and that's how he won his last fight, and that's why he's going to put this as his current fight method. No, no, it's it's not just that. Um, I'll give you the analysis and, and the reasons for why we're going this direction. But yes, Almeida did win his last fight by a ground and pound in round number two. This fight could end in round number one. Uh, don't see it going to round number three. I think most you know, consensus will tell you this fight ends within the first 10 minutes. At that point, it's like how and who. Could Jarzino land a nuclear shot and finish Almeida and surprise everyone? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jarzino is a, a full-blown grown man with grown man strength. Almeida, he's a, we'll talk more about it, but basically he has methods to win. I just think the first round finish against these higher level opponents, that's where you look at his resume, you start seeing that that's turning into round two. You know, he's a first round finisher, a lot of post, a lot of prior fights. But last few fights, you start seeing the fights go a little bit longer because the competition is getting better. And Jarzino Rosenstrike is by far the best fighter he has faced in the UFC. And I, I mean by far. So we'll talk about that as well. And that's why we're leaning towards a fight going to round number two, number one. And then by a submit, but not by submission, but by a ground and pound because Almeida tends to get his opponents in situations where he overwhelms them with ground strikes. If Jarzino, you know, fatigues, we can see that happening. All right, let's talk here about these this um these two fighters and their details. So for Jarzino, 13 and four overall, two and three in his last five fights. He's a big dog here, currently around plus 400, plus 380. He's out of Suriname, now 35 years old, six foot two in height with a 78 inch reach, trains out of American top team, excellent gym. As for Jolton Almeida, 18 and two overall. He's five and oh in his last five fights, really on a hot streak and a very active fighter. He's minus 490 to minus 500, depends on what we book you have him on. Out of Brazil, 31 years old in 10 months. So both guys, early to mid thirties, young for heavyweights. For Almeida, he's six foot three, so actually one inch taller than Jarzinho, which is hard for me to fathom. I, I don't think Jalton's taller than him. I, I, I contest. I believe they're both about the same height. If anything, I would even say Jarzinho would be taller, but whatever. Jalton has got a seventy nine inch reach, so one inch more reach than uh, Jarzinho. Maybe I can believe that because Jalton does have longer ish arms, almost eighty inch reach arms. And then as for the gym for Jalton, he's out of Galpao da Luta. That could be outdated. I kind of feel like I heard a rumor that Jalton was training in the States more. He should get to like Kill Cliff or something. Jalton Almeida is a future champion. Okay, let's go over our notes here. So Almeida wins by round two, ground and pound. That's currently sitting at plus 1100. For Jarzinho Rosenstrike, he's a very athletic big man with legit knockout power. His last 10 wins were all knockouts, not submissions, no decisions. 10 wins in a row, all by knockout. Now, that's not a 10 fight winning streak. I'm just saying his last 10 wins, right? He does lack volume and has little to no wrestling offense. He does have decent takedown defense, though, 75%, and he's going to need every bit of that against this Almeida character, and uh, we'll talk more about that in a second, but 75% takedown defense is very important here. That's been good so far for Jarzinho. He's going to need to do a good job here in that area. The one significant edge that Jarzinho has over Almeida is strength of schedule. 
For example, look at the opponents that Jarzinho's look fought, and then you compare them against the people that you know Almeida's fought. It's not really something you can compare. Rose Strike has shared the cage with people like Ninganu, may have heard of him, uh, Cyril Gan, Arlovsky. I mean, those three guys alone were all former titleists or title holders or interim, whatever you know. Almeida has been in the cage with guys like Parker Porter and Danilo Marquez. Like that's been the the crux of his schedule. Now we can appreciate the knockout power of Rosenstrike, but we're a little bit concerned about his ability to keep the fight standing. That's the issue. We like his power, experience, fighter IQ's all there. His takedown defense has been pretty good, but if he gets taken down one time, just one time, it could ruin a round, and he could end up getting finished in the ground just because he can't get up. Almeida's tricky in the ground. He'll look for submissions. He'll look for arm triangles. Um, he'll do whatever it takes to basically wear the guy out, and then eventually at some point, these big boys get fatigued like Jarzinho. They got their hands in their head. They're just balled up. And now we got Almeida not hurting him, just landing repeated strikes, and the referee comes in and stops it. That's what Almeida does to people, right? So if Almeida puts Jarzinho on his back, Mayday, Mayday, we're in trouble, especially, let's say, around two. So Jarzinho maybe survives round one, but now round two, it's like that first takedown, and it's like, oh, mentally, I'm screwed. Now you're fatigued, and I can see Almeida taking advantage of him there on the ground. Okay, as for the Brazilian Almeida, Super-duper hot prospect, balanced skill set. His fighter stats are kind of unbelievable. He absorbs only 0.34 strikes per minute. Now, if you extrapolate that out over the course of, let's say, like three minutes, my man's getting hit once <laughs> per um, per three minutes. So he's getting hit maybe one and a half times per round <laughs> based upon these numbers. Again, 0.34 strikes per minute. He's landing, I think, somewhere around two or three strikes per minute. So not high volume. This is more reflective of the way he fights, right? He takes you down. He owns you, controls you. And then, like, you, there's no striking going on. It's just him anaconda-ing you, elbowing you, and finishing you. And that speaks to his takedown numbers, right? 6.73 takedowns per fight. <laughs> if, you, if you take that uh, over the course of, you know, three rounds or so, this guy's averaging, obviously, over two takedowns per round. <laughs> you know, so this guy is an animal. Um, his fights don't tend to go to round three, though. The low absorption rate, takedown ability, you see the kind of fighter he is. The numbers are reflective of who he is. His striking is not bad, though. It, it, it can keep getting better, keep evolving. It's just low volume for now because of the way he fights. I'd like to see him do more striking. At the same time, why would you expose yourself to bombs from a guy like Jarzino Rosenstrike? I think the manner of victory for Jolt needs to be close to distance, right? Start wrestling at a trip, get him down. Now, for finishing ability, Almeida, 14 of his last 15 wins were some form of a finish. He had one decision in there. Now, we cannot attest for the first three fights on his resume. The, the first three or four fights he had on his career, it just says win. We don't know how he won. We assume he probably finished some of those fights, too. But what we do know is that in his last uh, 15 fights, he had 14 finishes. Now, here's the critiques we have for Almeida. He hasn't faced much competition. That's the number one critique, right? So he's been fighting guys, like we mentioned before, like Parker Porter, guys like Shamil Abdurakimov, who, if you know that guy, not offering much. So the schedule's been light. And and some of these guys he's fighting <laughs> probably get cut soon or have been cut. Like Danilo Marquez, he got let go, right? He's in the PFL. For Almeida, he's also fighting in the wrong weight class. And this is kind of tough for me to talk about without getting annoyed because I could see him contesting for a light heavyweight title tomorrow he seems to be that legit now we we can't corroborate that yet he hasn't fought really good fighters yet we don't know that but what we're seeing early on is like man this guy could literally contend for a title one day but as a heavyweight hell no like he's never going to be able to beat the top end heavyweights like for example a guy like um 
oh, the guy from over across the pond who hurt his leg, um, skilled heavyweight. But the point is this. There's heavyweights that he, he, he could beat these guys like Parker Porter. No problem. But the real big boys that can also wrestle with him too and exhaust him and sustain some of the stuff that John Almeida does, there's a cap there. So you're asking yourself, why is he fighting heavyweight? This is a simple answer. The UFC needs heavyweights so badly that they'll have guys who are not natural heavyweights fighting up there. In the case of Almeida, it's perfect. He'll beat up all the trash in the division. He'll pad his record even more. And for Almeida, he's like, listen, I'm not moving up in the rankings, really. I'm not trying to fight these big boys like, you know, Volkov and them. Probably not going to fight those guys. But I'm just collecting a lot of checks. You know, I'm fighting three, four times a year. These guys are nothing. The fights are finished over early. I'm good. With the idea at some point, I'm going to go down to light heavyweight again where I belong. And he would be a menace there. I mean, imagine the power and strength and finishing ability he has at heavyweight. You bring it down to light heavyweight, and he's built like a light heavyweight. He's going to be a problem. So, and look, by the way, he picks up guys at the heavyweight division. He picks these dudes up and slams them down. I can't imagine what he would do with light heavyweight. So, it's a it's it's not a huge issue. I just wonder: is he being a little mismanaged? Is he taking the the short term money now as a heavyweight instead of telling the UFC, "Listen, I appreciate being here." But I want a shot at the crown. I'm not going to get that as a heavyweight. Can we please start booking me for light heavyweight bouts? I don't know the deal is. There's some kind of deal on the table. Nonetheless, it just bothers me. I feel like we're not seeing his best potential. And look, time goes by quickly. If him and his management, his team, whatever, of advisors, if they're not careful, he'll turn around and realize the best time, the best like years of his career as a light heavyweight are either behind him or on the verge of being over. And so you don't want to see that. Um, because as a heavyweight, he could fight for a long time, right? But he's not a natural heavyweight. Anyway, all right, got off my soapbox there on that. We're optimistic, though, I think in the near future. Let's say he takes one or two more heavyweight bouts, then maybe next year, 2024, he goes ahead and moves down to light heavyweight. I would love to see him there. All right, so betting spots for this fight. What do we like here? Under two and a half rounds at minus 450. Fight not starting round number three. That prop price is not out yet. Almeida into the, into the distance at minus 350. And Almeida wins in round two at plus 380. So Almeida to win, ITD is minus 350. The books are telling you high likelihood, you know, uh, round one, round two finishes. I guess you can look at those two props as well. Is there a world where Jolton Almeida can drop the bag here? Yeah. Uh, Jarzino Rosenstrike has been in there with some killers. He, he's done He's done the D with some tough guys. He's earned wins in the UFC. He's got knockout power. It just takes one. I have no reason to believe that John Almeida will expose himself to too much damage. He only gets hit 0.34 times per minute. Um, again, very crafty about not getting hit. But what if he goes in for a shot? You know, remember Curtis Blades went in for a shot? He came down and what was it? Um, the other big heavyweight who kind of reminds me of this guy here. He came in with an uppercut and just that was it. One shot. These guys are powerful enough. One shot chases the entire fight. So there is a chance for Rosenstrike. And if you want to take a flyer on Rosenstrike by like knockout, that prop price is currently sitting knockout by uh, Rosenstrike is plus 475. Ill. That's terrible. He's plus 400 in the money line. Jeez. They're not giving you nothing there. So maybe you have to look at Rosenstrike. Maybe round one KO for Rosenstrike. Let me see if that's available just yet here. Give me one second, boys and girls. Rosenstrike by round one knockout is plus 1,050. Now we're talking. So a flash knockout, something early. Maybe we'll play that just for shits and giggles. But nonetheless, um, it doesn't matter what we're going to play. It seems like this is written in stone. Almeida is on fire. He wins this fight. I can see him picking up <laughs> Rosenstrike, slamming him down to the floor, making this you know very difficult and boring for Rosenstrike. And for Rosenstrike... It's simple. He needs to either land a nuclear shot early and just end it right away, 
or for two rounds at least has to has to show good takedown defense how is it going to happen i can't speak for the cardio of almeida in round three i don't know how we're going to get there um but for those first five minutes the first round he'll be on point and second round he's looked good recently too have a reason to believe he can't go 10 minutes of wrestling and if he does that i just don't see how my man Rosenstrike keeps it standing and then from there how does he survive all the ground and pound so again almeida round two ground and pound that is our pick in our method of victory that's currently sitting at plus 1100 so very surprised that that's as juicy as it is i'm not ground and pound but just a tko finish in round number two for almeida is giving you a lot of return so that's your main event guys again we like almeida round two finish and that's your last fight in the main card let's get to our outro okay guys we're at the end of the video i'm going to give you a summary of our picks to win also a few promos to remind you about a few things coming up and if you haven't done so already definitely click the like and the subscribe button along with put on the notifications so you know about our new content when it comes out all right so for our swift picks for ufc abc number four in the main event we like almeida by round two ground and pound smith in the co-main event by a round three submission machado gary by a decision alex moreno by decision McGee by decision, Williams by decision, Cody Stamen by decision, Pretoria by a round two knockout, Natan Levy by a round one submission, Kim by decision, Green by decision, and the first fight in the card, Jessica Rose Clark in her return fight from injury to win that fight by decision. Those are your swift picks for UFC ABC number four. All right, so now that you've got all our picks and our methods of victory, I want to give you guys a few reminders about this week and some things coming up. On Friday, join us for our Friday night show, which is called... MMA Happy Hour, excuse me, almost mixed it up with our Sunday show, but MMA Happy Hour with myself and Monique Yip. Now, this Friday, she won't be with us because she's going to be on vacay for her birthday, but I'll have a different co-host with us. That's 8 o'clock p.m. to 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, every Friday, right here on this YouTube channel live. You can come through, leave some comments. We open up a new bottle of wine. We talk we talk all things MMA and go over the last preview of the UFC card coming up, which will be the next day, right? Then also coming out this week, every Friday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, will be our interview of the week. It's a fighter, a coach, promoter, someone in the game of mixed martial arts. Last few weeks, we've had a few good fighters. We had Cheyenne Blissmith two weeks ago. We had Kai Kamaka last week. That interview will air at 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time as a premiere. So it airs almost like it's live, but it's pre-recorded. You can go watch the premiere of it. There's a countdown. You can leave some comments and join the chat section. Um, that's every Friday. A nice 15, 20-minute interview with a fighter you may recognize. Then this weekend, like every weekend, Sunday, midnight MMA, every Sunday night, that's 12 a.m. Sunday night, which is actually Monday morning, 12 a.m. to 1.30 a.m. If you missed the show on Sunday nights, it's okay. You can catch us uh, via podcast, a recorded version of it on YouTube. If you don't know, we do have a podcast. All the content you're hearing here, uh, not all of it, but like 95% of the content you hear on our channel makes its way to our podcast. So if you have a podcast you listen to, maybe something else, Look us up on your podcast, whatever you're using, Spotify or a Apple, whatever your, your your medium is to get to podcasts. Look us up at May Fight Club. Look for our black and yellow logo and then follow us. Subscribe to our podcast. Give us some likes. Give us some hearts. Give us some ratings. But for the people that are on the go, that could be a lot easier of a way to listen to our content instead of fiddling with YouTube and your phone and stuff like that. Maybe you're a jogger. Maybe you like to work out. You just want to hear my voice while you're working out, giving you inspiration. Um, yeah, you can find us on any podcast platform that you're looking for. Um, and then newsletter. Last thing on newsletter. If you haven't subscribed to a newsletter, let me tell you the perks and the reasons why. There's a free version, number one. So that takes no skin off your back, right? The link is down below. It's run through Substack. If you don't know what Substack means, that's okay. It's a free platform for writers like ourselves to go ahead and provide content and then build a subscriber base, right? So it's a free platform. You can download the app as well, put it on your phone. This way, when we drop a newsletter, like this week, we'll drop 
two newsletters, one for Bellator and one for UFC, obviously on ABC. Newsletter will have a breakdown written format for each fight in detail, stats and analysis. At the end of the full breakdown article, you'll have resource links to our Excel sheet, breakdown notes, and then also links to like this video breakdown right here, along with our Swift Picks video, and then a reminder that it's available via podcast. Maybe the most valuable component of the newsletter is our tip sheet. At the end of the tip, sh- at the end of the newsletter breakdown, there's a full tip sheet with all the bets we're going to be placing for that event, an analysis of the bets, a tabulation of the bets, how many units we're looking to win, so on and so forth. That's all available through our newsletter. And also one more thing, there's a paid version of the newsletter. That's five bucks a month. By doing that for the price of a cup of coffee um, or expensive drink at a local bar, maybe you're having a beer somewhere, uh, that could be the cost of supporting our channel, five bucks a month. It helps us keep the lights on per se, uh, keeps the momentum going. So if you can subscribe to our newsletter but you can't afford it, that's okay, it's a free version. So for example, a free version will give you the entire prelim card written up, the full breakdown of the prelim card. Just no main card, no resource links, and no tip sheet. But still, it's something. And for those who can afford five bucks a month, we appreciate your support, guys. So the link down below, below again, is for our newsletter. Check that out when you have some time. And thank you guys for your time. I appreciate you guys stopping by. Again, like and subscribe if you haven't done so already. This is the end of the breakdown for UFC ABC number four. Enjoy the event. Check us out on Friday night. Check us out on Sunday. We'll see you guys soon.